And then what they did this week. And to join me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you. He's the evil leader of the Arcadian Vanguard family, and you ought to see him manipulate his puppets. The great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again, despite whatever defamatory comment you just made there that was unwarranted and untrue. And unlike you, I can get back into Canada anytime I want. Hey, well, I haven't wanted. See? See how that they said, before you want to come back, you've got to file this paperwork, and I've never wanted to come back bad enough to file the paperwork. But ladies and gentlemen, what I said earlier is going to tie in as you hear this program, because since there was some modern wrestling in Toronto, Canada this past week, and actually I got... A uh, an advanced copy of a brand new book that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, but we'll go into more detail by Vance Nevada, Uncontrolled Chaos, Canada's Remarkable Professional Wrestling Legacy. And I've been reading on that. I thought we would just tie some things together this week on the program. So we got the classic wrestling and we got the current wrestling. Which one do you think we're going to enjoy more? But, um... We just did this. Huh. I mentioned. Oh, quit now. I'm not I'm not mood to be made mockery of Mortimer. Um we just spoke just a few days ago, and I was mentioning right before we, we we went on the air, I said, I nothing's happened to me since last week. I've been signing figures. I'll have you know that the first I've lost a little track, but I would say between 750 and 800 action figures ordered at jimcornet.com during action figure Armageddon on September 17th and since then have already been signed and packed and either delivered or sent or are ready to be handed to a feather bottom, whichever one sticks out, whatever hand they've got left. And I'm proud of myself, but that's almost all I've been doing since la- and and watching the wrestling since I last talked to you, bro. What have you been doing? What are you up to these days? I'm up to like five, eleven and a half. Oh God damn it! You know that was funny. The first time I heard it, I kicked the slats out of my cradle, as Mama Cornette used to say. About I even told old jokes when I was a kid. I don't know how I knew them. They must have come to. It was people called me on the telephone. Yeah, there's the comedy police right now. Yeah, hold on one second. Don't know, don't care. Thank you. All <laughs> right. Simple enough. But anyway, I haven't given a weather update on Louisville, Kentucky here recently. Have I? So we were talking about that when it was so incredibly hot. But at some point, we were supposed to get a fall, right? Nice fall, cool, maybe brisk, but pleasant in the day and and you know coolish at night now it hasn't rained in a month 
And the dew point, remember we talked about how important the dew point is. The dew point yesterday was 23 degrees. The air is so dry you can shave your face with it. And it hasn't rained in a month. And the leaves are falling early. And now we're going to have our first freeze uh, within the next 36 hours or so. And I was just in the backyard with the Monroes getting them started on some things, and it's fucking nippy today as well. You don't know whether to turn your heat on at night or your air on during the day. If I was actually around other human organisms like I used to be at this time of year, I would be ragingly ill because I'm a little, a little croupy and snotty as it is. This is horrible weather. We've ruined the atmosphere, Brian. The climate is what I'm talking about. When you say we, I think it's more your generation than my generation. We started cleaning things up. How how fucking old are you? I'm 42. Well, I'm no, I'm I'm older than you are. That's you know that a proven fact. Yeah, you said you were 42, like I'm 40 and you're 40. Oh, you don't mean you're 40. Also, you mean you're 42. That's correct. Yeah, I kicked my slats out of a crate. Are the comedy police on the phone again? Where, where the yeah, comedy uh-huh, police? Yeah, all right. Well, by the way, if anybody in the metropolitan Louisville area has a, a water witch, a divining rod, we've talked about those before, uh, leave your number with me because I pl- see, I brought on the drought. I planted some shit around the house, the new landscaping, and now every day I'm out there with a fucking hose because it hadn't rained in a month. If I hadn't planted anything, we'd be swimming right now. For as old-fashioned as you are, you know, you're looking for a divining rod, do you think you would have done well before electricity or would have, would the lack of AC have been the deal breaker? No, no, that's a deal breaker. Okay. No, that's a deal breaker right there. No, I wouldn't have done well before. I would have been a grumpy son of a bitch before electricity. Not... Not anything like the pleasant, jovial, jocular fellow that you see always with a smile on his face like I am right now. If I were before electricity, no heat, no air conditioning, no refrigerator, no stove, no, fuck that. Fuck the pioneers. And and their fucking personal hygiene, as we mentioned in Manscaped ads many times, had to be fucking rotten also. They didn't have a lot of options, to be fair. Well, they could have invented some quicker. Who? Non-inventing fucking pioneers going around with their fucking crotches and their pits stinking. They could have they could have easily found some herbal remedy, like some plant that grows out in the forest that you rub it in your stinky crotch and your pits and it it makes you smell like lavender or or minty fresh or something like that. But no, they just went around growing fungus in all of their orifices and spitting about and shitting in the street. You've seen the guy. I mean, yeah. That that existed up until the, what, the fucking Not early ago. 20th century. But that's the thing People you never just read. just shitting in the street. You never read that in the history books. You know, George Washington was a great leader, and boy, did he smell like shit. Yeah, George Washington, uh, the father of our country, shit in the street. Benjamin Franklin had so many wonderful things to say. But get that man a toothbrush. Oh, my God. Well, George Washington, didn't he have the wooden teeth? Is that a myth, or did he actually have wooden teeth? Well, I don't. I, I assume he had no natural teeth. I don't know what they were made out of, but 
the the story when I was a kid back in the days before electricity, when I was in the little one room schoolhouse, was that he had the wooden teeth. But can you imagine what that fucking smelled like? Have a fucking wet piece of wood in your mouth all a goddamn day long. How do you think you would have done with those wigs every time you had to go to court? Well, and what was the deal with the powdering? Was that to make them smell better? But then you're you're leaving dust everywhere. Every goddamn courtroom in America back in those days must have had an inch of fucking white powder. Not not like the white powder that our courtrooms had in the 80s. All right, this is your show. All right, well, speaking of stinky presidents, <laughs> let's transition to modern day. And I'm sure he the, the folds of the mango Mussolini's fat contain some corpulent organisms and bacteria that emit a stench, just like the stench that he emits every time he opens his mouth. But watch the, the final telecast January 6th commission hearing, although they're still going to be continuing investigations, and I hope they bring back another televised uh, hearing because it's the best thing on television. But Brian, without even going into profanity or a rant that might get us kicked off of YouTube, even though you'll probably take this out anyway, is anybody now is anybody now that is still in support of that criminal fucking pig, is anybody now, are they willfully ignorant to still believe in this guy and his bullshit? They're stupid on purpose. There's no other solution. They ignore the facts because they don't want to be wrong because they're embarrassed or deflated somehow that they were taken in by a shyster manipulated by a con man, played as fools and suckers for a grifter. I could go on and on. That must be what it is. Anybody, after the televised commission hearings that every patriotic American should have watched, has proven not beyond a reasonable doubt, but beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this pig-faced, arrogant, obnoxious, egotistical, pathologically lying, criminal-minded psychopath orchestrated the whole fucking thing. There's no reason to say this is a partisan witch hunt because the partisans that were hunting this little bitch were his own people, his own party, the Republicans, his own aides, his own legal staff, his own advisors his own fucking family when they were pressed. The only people that didn't testify against him were the people that pleaded the fifth. And for those of you across the pond and around the world, that means they took their constitutional right to not incriminate themselves by telling the truth, which meant they were in on it too, and they committed crimes as well. That's why they would not admit it. But every other person, yes, he knew he lost. Yes, he knew he was lying. No, we couldn't talk him out of it. Yes, they've connected him with every group and member of the Proud Boys and the other militia dipshits that plotted the whole excursion on January 6th and his reasons behind it and that he wouldn't do anything about it because it was his plan all along. Everything has come out. There's people that have stuck their head in the sand 
and refuse to admit facts and reason and evidence because it makes them look like idiots for believing this obviously phony buffoon all along. And now they've subpoenaed him, but since he's such a, you know, here's the thing, Brian, he wants to testify because he's such an obnoxious, egotistical, megalomaniacal fucking fool that he thinks that if he got out there, <clears throat> he could do a good job of saying, no, no, it was all everybody else. I did nothing. I wasn't that's even why, there. I wasn't even there. But that's why every attorney that he's ever had, I think including Giuliani at one point, before he got disbarred for lying, saying the election was stolen, and presenting fruitless and meritless cases before courts, or shot him down every time. Do you disbar a lawyer? Yes, that's the correct term. But besides that, he's they've basically proven plot by plot all along, and every time that he's had any kind of legal advice before, they've said, don't testify, Donald Trump, because you'll lie under oath. They will, You can't help yourself. That's all you do. And they'll catch you, and it will be worse. So I know he'd love to get out there, but he's, sca he's scared. He runs like a little bitch from people like Nancy Pelosi or Liz Cheney. Or he's scared of the women. That he don't like it because he can't figure out exactly how he can manipulate all that around them for whatever reason. So he'll never show up because he's a coward and he'd have to plead the fifth and he'd have to testify that he committed all kinds of criminal acts and that he's goddamn guilty of treason. But we know it anyway. And now that they've done this work and they are going to make referrals to the Department of Justice for criminal action, and that's all that anybody needs to do to make the world a better place is zap this motherfucker for any criminal offense, but especially the Insurrection Act, which he is guilty of, and disqualify him from ever running for dog catcher again so that the ignorant, stupid, the willfully ignorant, gullible, stupid, and or embarrassed segment of our society that still thinks there was nothing to see there and that this moron should be in charge of anything, cannot do this again. And that they can't do it with somebody else because they're going to tighten up the regulations. <laughs> I can't believe I have to say this, surrounding whether the President of the United States can take over the goddamn country or not next time. They left loopholes thinking that that would never be a thing that needed to be addressed until. 40-some percent of the country got mass stupid and put us all in the hands of this fucking criminal piece of shit. So anyway, it was a good day the other day. Indeed, it's your show. <laughs> well, we got... <laughs> all right, let's get back to the wrestling. 
explain this to me, Brian. The, apparently, the we talked about Gunther and Seamus the other day on television, and it looked like that Gunther tapped out in his match. He was in the Cloverleaf or whatever. Right. And he tapped out, and but the referee was looking at it and then and then waved it off. Well, he tapped twice, I believe it was. Well, he tapped twice. He tapped. And we said, I said, what the fuck? What was that supposed to be? Right? Because he obviously was tapping, but yet she said, no, it wasn't. And I didn't understand it. And you did not offer up any fucking instant explanation for that either when I was telling you I didn't understand it. So are you claiming now you understood it? No, I'd still say the same thing I thought there. He tapped twice, so I think that's why it wasn't officially a WWE tap. And it wasn't also like, oh my god, I'm in pain. It was kind of like, ah, what the fuck? That was my well, argument it was, then, and that's still what it, it was like. It was odd. Now. It was off-putting. And now we uh, potentially have an explanation here, and actually it was explained in some unclear method on SmackDown this week. But this is an email from Joseph. Dear Jim, and parenthetically, and Brian, I suppose, Gunther on the last episode of SmackDown was using a trick from the world of Brazilian jiu-jitsu called the Brazilian Tap. A double tap like that is not a valid tap out. One must tap at least three times. So I was not aware that there was a numerical quotient on the tap. But he goes on to say a Brazilian tap is a way to try to trick an inexperienced opponent into thinking you've tapped out so they release the hold and you can attempt to go on to win the contest. It's a bit of dirty pool, but something educated modern fight fans may recognize. And then he linked to a story on the the underhanded technique, he says. But so that apparently is a thing. And then somebody else on Twitter, I believe it was, said that in Germany, maybe for catch wrestling or auto vons, or it's an established uh, uh, an established custom that that's that's a a fake ta- a fake out kind of a tap where you start to tap, but you don't really. And they, But they didn't explain it on the episode of SmackDown where they did it. Did they? And I just tuned the announcers out? You know, I really do tune them out, but I think if they would have brought up submission expert Otto Vons, I would have paid attention. Well, I don't know. I mean, just to, whether it's an Otto Vons promotion thing that Gunther may have... But the point is, apparently this is a a thing and then on smackdown last night as we're recording this they referenced it from last week and I, michael cole it tried to explain it but the way that he explained it you if you didn't if you didn't know what i just said and read what i just you wouldn't know what he had just said and it didn't make any sense cuz apparently he's seen the same shit and people have explained it, and he jotted down notes, or somebody told him, well, here's what it was, but he he didn't say it that way either, or in a, in a manner in which anybody would have understood, but at least they're trying to explain it after the fact. But it was odd, because if you and I did not know that 
little factoid, then I would think that the average guy from the gas station in fucking Hernando, Mississippi would probably have been confused, don't you think? Especially, again, with no explanation at all from any of the commentators. and Or the one that we could understand a week later. Anyway, so that's that. I'll tell you what we can understand. This week on Tales from the Territories on Vice TV is going to be the AWA episode where you get, from what I understand, a variety of viewpoints and retellings of the Mad Dog Vashon on the airplane story. And to this point, it's become like the modern era wrestling equivalent of the Zapruder film. Everybody contributed to it and analyzed it in some way or another, because if you listen to all the stories, somebody in the AWA gave Mad Dog Vashon a different kind of pharmaceutical or alcoholic cocktail before he got on that plane and and the result is i don't know if they actually went up in the air to do the reenactment and mad dog was hanging out of a a real airplane at fifteen thousand feet or whatever but the real mad dog 50 years ago was anyway that's uh vice tv tuesday at 10 o'clock eastern time on this week's tales from the territories and cult of cornet members stand by i am coming up on camera in the next few weeks, but uh, in the meantime, enjoy some of my classic photography they're using for B-roll. And the remaining episodes, and I don't know whether they're in order after AWA, Stampede, Florida, Crockett Promotions, Portland, Polynesian Pacific Pro, World Class, and Mid-South Wrestling on Tales from the Territory. And I understand this week, Ken Patera is as cranky as ever. Uh, on the uh, on the roundtable discussion. Hope they got that piss bucket ready. Hey, God damn it! Now that's uh, so. Anyway, um, you know, there's another great book on uh, pro wrestling that's just been released, and uh, it's a follow up to a couple others he's done that we've talked about. Sean Delaney, who does the 400 Court Street podcast. And it's called 400 Court Street because that is the was the address, Agava still is the address, of the venerable Evansville, Indiana Coliseum, where, you know, that building, because of the age of it and the fact that it's still there, but Jerry Jarrett ran it for so many years in the 70s, 80s, 90s, Luthez wrestled there as a rookie. Strangler Lewis was on the main event in that building. And it ended up that fucking, I, I get the, the, the most modern champion that would have worked there probably was Kurt Angle. Well, no, wait a minute. Kurt was in Memphis when they had already closed down. So The Rock, I bet, was there at some point. I don't know. We'll find out when Sean finishes his series, but he's done the history of wrestling in Evansville for 1959 and a volume for 1960. And the newest one, Part one of the 60s it covers 1961 and 1962. And he's done this research through the newspaper files, which uh, in the years that he's covered so far, Evansville had a local promoter named Leon Balkan. And he booked a different talent from the St. Louis office, the Indianapolis office for Barnett, and the Nashville office with Nick Goulis and Roy Welch. 
And, uh, you know, uh, Goulas and Welch would end up taking over the whole thing through Jerry Jarrett years later, but they were minor players. The main talent in these years was from St. Louis and from Indianapolis, but they had their own local television show. So they used talent in different mixtures. It's it's fascinating. It was kind of a a little territory within a territory. And with their own local TV, they made Rip Hawk uh, one of the first, you know, big local Evansville stars. Anyway, there's a factoid. I love that word. In this, uh, and by the way, again, search him, Sean Delaney, the 400 Court Street podcast, history of pro wrestling in Evansville, all that good stuff. Uh, Rymore Press, or no, Bymore Press, I'm sorry. Rymore Press. Rymore, well, I thought it was an R. <clears throat> I couldn't see exactly. Anyway, um, he's put this together from newspaper uh, articles, which the local promoter used heavily in those days to publicize his cards, and he also draws comparisons to what else is going on in Evansville at the time, and and uh, the promotions ups and downs with the Indiana Athletic Commission. That was a frequent thing in those days, the promotions and the athletic commissions. But as we've seen with Scott Teal's book recently on the Indiana or the Tennessee Athletic Commission, you get some great facts when the government was involved that that have you know hung around to this day. The the promoters weren't real good public record keepers. So the Indiana State Athletic Commission in 1960, so that would be 62 years ago, took in $128,000 for that year in taxes on wrestling in the state of Indiana. And because it was a 10% uh, cut in those days, that means that Jim Barnett and Johnny Doyle in Indianapolis and Leon Balkin in Evansville and whoever promoted wrestling in the state of Indiana for that year reported. Remember, we've talked about that. They reported to the government $1,280,000 in ticket sales. And in 2022, that's $12,035,000 and some change. Um, that would mean that, well, and I would just say that would mean that 1.2 million would have gone to the state. Go ahead. This is a weird question, but it's the kind of thing you may have thought about. Every promoter skimmed. Is there every promoter up until the nineties in Tennessee skimmed? Let me protect my friends every promoter <laughs> up until the nineties in Tennessee skimmed, but all the promoters skimmed. Is there a general consensus of what? the skim percentage was no no it, it it because you can't just make a rule of thumb on something like that right right but you know if it's you look, op, it's it's opportunity and you know and and means when the athletic commission is there you know and, and or you're in an arena that especially now remember this was the days before uh computerized ticketing but the way that you did it in the old days is you would have a, a ticket manifest where you would, if you were the promoter, you would bring to the building or they would already have the tickets, X number, like 400 ringside tickets and, uh, you know, a thousand reserve tickets and uh, rolls of general admission tickets or whatever the fuck. 
And the general admission tickets that were rolled, they had a starting number, 12067, whatever. And at the end of the roll was 13074. Yeah, okay. So you start out knowing how many tickets you've got, and then it was always a situation where some buildings wanted to have their own ticket sellers. In that case, the promoter put a person in the in the box office to keep an eye on them. Other times it was a the Evansville Coliseum in the Jarrett days, they rented the building and there was the old whatever military group it was, the VFW or whatever, the old guys that ran the building and did the maintenance that hung around. But basically, Christine Jarrett was in the box office with Donna or whoever her driver was. They were selling the tickets themselves. And then whoever Christine nominated as ticket taker was at the door and would take the ticket from the person and tear it and hand them the stub back. That's how you found your ringside seat or whatever. So there, and at that time, uh, when I first started going, there was an Indiana Athletic Commission, but then later, and later on, they had uh, dissolved it. So when the commissioner was there, he could eyeball and see what the crowd kind of looked like within fifty or hundred people if you were good enough. But that, you know, I'm not I'm not accusing Christine Jarrett of, you know, cheating the government or double dipping or whatever the case. But I'm saying in a situation like that, if the commissioner's there and they're not sitting there watching you sell every ticket and you're running the box office yourself, you can do it if you want to. And or and if they don't send a commissioner to Lagudi, Indiana or Valparaiso and they didn't send anybody, and it was on the honor system. I know this happened in Kentucky often. Then you just filled out a form. Here's how many tickets I sold. Here was the gross. Here's your check for the commission percentage, and they sent it in, and nobody was any the wiser. Things could be done, especially back again before. If you weren't in a big-time arena, electronic ticketing, all these manifests and these ways to check up, and a commissioner there, if you're if you're running a show where you're going to sell 1,500 tickets in Mitchell, Indiana, and everybody's going to give you $4 for each one of them, and it's all in cash and ones, shit can fall off the truck, right? So the point is, there was ways around with means and opportunity in all of those days. That's why the boys always thought the promoters were fucking them on the house. They'd go out, and they would look at the house. And of course, wanting it to be big, they would see if there was 3,000 people there, they'd see 3,500. And the promoter might come in and say, yeah, there was 2,400. And between the two of it, it's way off. And then you've got animosity, animosity. There was a story, Nick, Bobby Eaton told me this. I'm trying to think of the town. It doesn't matter. But the deal is, Nick Goulas, every time when his business got bad, and Bobby was there when Nick, you know, 78, 79, 80, when he he went out. And a thing that Nick would do going back to the old days, when business was bad in a town, or you were opening up a new town and just wanted to get people in the building and get an eye on your product. Back in those days, 60s, 70s, the regular tickets were three, four, and five dollars, right? If that, sometimes three and three fifty and four. So Nick would do dollar night 
where all seats a dollar. He did it in Louisville when he was trying to fight Jarrett and it didn't work. And he did it in other places, like I mentioned. So for uh, several weeks, this town, it may have been Huntsville, may have been Huntsville, whatever, but town struggling. And one time the boys came in and said, well, Nick, it looked like it was up a little bit tonight. What are you talking about, boy? Well, it looked like there was a few more. Well, it just, the building's too big. The building seats 3,000 people. And then <laughs> the next week he did the dollar night and every seat was full. And Nick turned in $1,800. <laughs> so you couldn't win. But anyway, so point being, back to Indiana. Back home again in India. Indiana wants me. Lord, I can't go back there. So that means that in 2022 dollars, that was $12 million, the equivalent that they reported in, in income, and $1.2 million would have gone to the state on taxes for wrestling shows because there was wrestling in every major town weekly or bi-weekly and every little town on a somewhat regular basis. And at that point in 1960, there were no cities in Indiana with a population over 500,000. Indianapolis was at 476,000. And if you included the metropolitan area, it was still only 643,000. Evansville, that ran weekly shows, was the state's fourth largest metropolitan area with a population of 181,000. And they were doing those kind of ticket sales. And that's, again, that's what was reported. And since Indiana was neither the best state for wrestling in the country, my God, you know, on a, you know, like an Illinois or New York or California or, you know, Florida or whatever, it wasn't Montana either. But if it just ranked in the middle, can you imagine if that was the median income? 25th in place for the United States of America, then can you imagine the gross <laughs> in 1960? It's, it's in, for 50 states. And we had just gotten to 50 at that point. So again, you know, facts like this, I'm, I'm fascinated by. Because it shows you how many people were buying tickets to see live professional wrestling, and then you multiply that how many times over with how many people were watching it on television. Because, you know, even in the Memphis days, when you had 300,000 viewers, you still only had 10,000 people at the Coliseum. That's 30 times the amount. So what the fuck? Anyway, that's why I love the, uh, did you have any questions, Brian, on my tax dissertation no i love segments like this and i'm looking forward to checking out this book i will say i've heard a little bit about evansville lately from wrestling fans for some reason no one has a good thing to say about the town <laughs> well the rockabar pizza rockabar pizza was the best thing about evansville you know it was a wednesday night the building in the 70s was old and it was not a big drawing town uh, even, you know, through the Jarrett days because it was a Wednesday night town and they had TV there and they could run spot shows off of it. And they basically wanted to pay the boys on Wednesday night and gross enough money to, you know, to pay for the expenses and have something left over. But there were never major events there. 
at least in the in the Jarrett years. But there's a place where there was major events. We got another book plug. I mentioned earlier Uncontrolled Chaos by Vance Nevada. And Vance has been a wrestler, writer about wrestler, gadabout, as uh, our old friend Dennis Chestnut down in Barberville, Kentucky used to say, uh, around wrestling for 30 years. And he has come out with this book that he just sent me a copy of, and I'm pretty sure it's out. I know it's out, as a matter of fact. I have the information. I got an advanced copy. But the website is uncontrolledchaosbook.com. Now, you can get it through Amazon, etc., etc., but obviously we want to go straight to the author on for our people, a more personal touch, and he gets to keep more of the money. Uh, uncontrolledchaosbook.com. It's Uncontrolled Chaos by Vance Nevada, but what it is is an encyclopedia, almost 500 pages, on the history of wrestling in Canada. And he goes province by province. And, uh, you know, for example, Ontario and Quebec and etc. And it gives the history of each promotion since the early 1900s that has run the area of uh, pictures, clippings, posters, bills, etc. from those eras and talks about the top talent and the happenings, whatever. And obviously, you know, it, it goes um, it, it, first the territory system through 89, and then he actually updates with more of the newer major independents. I'm pretty sure that there's probably been some outlaw mud shows up there that have run under the radar, but all the major independents that ran after the territories went away. And then there's a variety of lists in the back of of champions and of uh, top wrestlers and gates and crowds and different things. And it was, so anyway, I haven't got it all the way through it yet because it's monstrous. It's huge even. But uh, one of the uh, lists in the back caught my eye, and it's uh, I don't know how many, but it's like the top, my God, 50 or so crowds in uh, Canadian history. And, you know, here's the thing about this information. If I said to you, what is traditionally, historically, consistently over the last hundred years, the biggest city for wrestling in the United States, you'd say Chicago. That's pretty much a given, right? Say that again for the last 50 years? For the last 100 years. Last 100 years? The, but really all of professional wrestling. In the United States, the the most consistent city, the biggest city, the you know, no major lulls or problems or issues would be Chicago. Well. Well. I mean, they had a run, they had an amazing run, and the whole business was really based out of Chicago for a while, but. For the same years, when you when you look at when Chicago kind of went down, although WWF did good in Chicago, New York did have a lull a couple times. Yeah, a big one for 10 years, yeah. 12 years. That's what I'm saying. Gotch and Hackenschmidt, for fuck's sake. Starting in the early 1900s, Chicago drew, what, two million-something two equivalent in today's money for Gotch and Hackenschmidt. It was huge in the 30s. They ran the business in the 50s. 
the International Amphitheater in the 60s and 70s. The WWF, I was one of their main markets. Chicago is the city in the United States. And, of course, Paul Alperstein in the 90s. Can't forget that. Well, there you go. No, you know what? The only negative $50,000 gate in wrestling history. With the caveat that the Cubs suck and the Mets are the best, I agree with you (laughs) about Chicago. Okay, but if I opened that up and I said, what's number two, and instead of the United States, let's make it North America. Toronto. There you go. Toronto is the obviously the number two city in North America for pro wrestling and with its history. Um, and, and I mean, in the 40s, when New York Madison Square Garden was dark, Toronto and St. Louis were Wild Bill Longson's best cities, drawing 10,000 people a show. Uh, Nanjo Singh, who was the top heel in Toronto in the 40s, 30s and 40s, was the inspiration for the ramp they used to have or that and did until the end of the territory days where guys would walk through ringside on an elevated four foot ramp because people would try to get that fucking Nanjo sing. And then Longson used to hide under the, it became a thing for the top heel to hide under the ring in Toronto in Maple Leaf gardens. And, and they got that ramp to try to get them above the people. But Toronto has been incredible for wrestling. So on this list, of the top 20 crowds in the history of Canada. And there's only two cities involved, Montreal and Toronto. And they're actually pretty heavily toward Montreal on the top 20, although Toronto has the top several spots. Harley's having an allergy attack. Take a dink of water, baby. Clearly she roots for Montreal. But anyway, I thought we would go through the list of the top 20 crowds in the history of Canada because, you know, we've talked about how, oh, goddamn, people just say wrestling's bigger and better than ever. And boy, howdy, the big wrestling resurgence. Out of the top 20 crowds in the history of the country of Canada to attend professional wrestling, do you know how many? are from the 2010s. How many of the largest crowds in the history of Canadian wrestling are from the 2000s? How many of the top 20? How many are are from the 2010s? I'm just going to throw a wild guess out there. Two. None. Do you know how many are from the 2000s? Two. One. That was close. Do you know how many are from the 1990s? Okay, now this is where it gets interesting, because this is kind of the end of it, and I don't remember crowd sizes, but Jacques Rougeau had some big shows. You were a part of one show, but I don't remember the crowd on that show. I'm going to guess... Plus, that wait, the 90s, that counts WrestleMania 6. I'm going to go with 4. 5. Okay. Do you know how many from the 80s? Well, the 80s has the biggest one ever, which is 86, Hogan and Orndorff. Maple Leaf Gardens was running regularly, so it wouldn't have been any extraordinary crowd there. Montreal had some big shows. That was the end of Montreal as a big town. From the 80s, I'm going to go with three. Four (sighs) of the top 20 crowds in history 
the 1970s. Unless I'm wrong, I'm going to guess any crowds in the 70s that would have been record crowds would have come from Montreal. I'm going to go with four. Two. Fuck. The 1960s. I'm not sure because I don't know if they ran any stadium shows ever anywhere. Well, they would have. Well, trying to also add up how many have we done so far. Two, four, (laughs) eight. One. Two. Okay, and and we're going to do the last one here, and then we'll get into them. But to recap, of the top 20 all-time biggest crowds in Canada, one was from the 2000s. None was from the 2010s. One was from the 2000s. Five were from the 90s. Four were from the 80s. Two were from the 70s. Two were from the 60s. How many from the 1950s? I was supposed to add these up, and I didn't. How many? Six. Wow. More of the top 20 crowds in Canada from the 1950s than any other decade. Now, this will skew a little bit because, as you mentioned, because of a couple of WrestleManias. But let's go in, in ascending order. Number 20. August 24, 1996, Toronto. I was there. That was the exhibition stadium, right? It was just a house show, not a pay-per-view. But because Toronto was always good and always so hot, they'd either run the Sky Dome or they went outside. It was summertime. Main event, ladder match, Shawn Michaels and Goldust, 21,211 people. You know, I have, to, I have to admit, I'm a little surprised by that. I don't remember hearing too much about that. I mean, I'm sure I did at the time, but it's not one of those shows that you still hear people talk about when Shawn Michaels drew 20 plus thousand in Toronto. No, well, that's it was a house show. That's all it was. But Toronto was hot even before everything else was hot. Toronto stayed hot a lot. It, but it was, uh, I wrestled Jose Lothario on that show. It was the weekend after SummerSlam with Michaels and Vader. And I remember I told you a story when I took the bump off the apron after Michaels nailed me. When I went to the floor, I over-rotated and the point of my left knee went straight into the ground. And fuck, I either popped a bursal sack or swelled it up or what. It was swollen up with a lot of fluid and a lot of blood in it. And I had that match. I knew we were going to draw 20,000 people. And the payoff was going to be decent. So we did TV on Monday and Tuesday. And then I had a couple days off. I had driven because SummerSlam was in Cleveland. And the TVs were around there. And then I just took a couple of days off, sat in a hotel room, iced my knee, and went to the stadium show. Didn't show anybody or let let them see me take my pants off because my whole leg was purple. So they wouldn't let me work. And me and Jose did like three or four minutes. And I got three grand Canadian which was $2,200 or whatever in real money at that time and would probably be, what, about four grand or more now. Anyway, but that was number 20. Number 19, August 15th, 1956 in Montreal for Eddie Quinn. Edward Carpentier and Killer Kowalski. I was going to say it has to be Kowalski. And that was a stadium show because they drew 21,454. Wait, that was 56? 
1956. When did Carpentier really take off as a draw? Because 57 is when they give him the NWA title, you know, and then they dispute it, but he ends up being a world champion going forward. When did he really establish himself as the draw? In Montreal. Well, hold on. I didn't know you were going to ask me a question or I would have had this marked, but I'm sure that this book will tell us, but I'm going to say 54, 55. He jumped in and was hot quick. I'm trying to get to the uh, table of contents. So that I can find Quebec. Aha, Quebec. That's where I'd go right now if I had to go to Canada. <laughs> I'd be in Montreal and having a good here time. Here we go, Eddie Quinn. And Eddie Quinn promoted from 1939 to 1963. Um, hold on. A lot of details. Uh, Kowalski's reputation was cemented during an October 15, 1952 showdown against Yukon Eric. That's where he knocked Eric's ear off with his knee drop. And uh, we're getting to, aha! By 1956, Quinn's territory was reportedly grossing $1.3 million per year. It was in 1956 and the Montreal Territory. Canadian dollars. Uh, Canadian dollars, whatever that may have been. So we don't even know how to really figure that. But uh, in Montreal, the action would often feature two or three outdoor cards each summer, commonly at Delorimer. It's probably French, so I'm mangling it. Delorimer Stadium. Uh, that it could accommodate bigger crowds than even the sold-out Montreal Forum. And... Uh, Carpentier, I think 55, 56-ish is where I'm seeing all the big business. That was Carpentier. And then in 57, Eddie Quinn renounces the NWA and withdraws. So that was, he got this guy that was hot and drawing all this money and they tried to take him away and he got pissed. And that all happened within a couple of years. 57 is also the riot in the garden. He's in the middle of that. Uh, it says Carpentier November. attracted the eyes of the industry when he headlined three events drawing more than 20,000 fans in the summer of 1956. That's how you get over with the other promoters. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. So number 19 was Carpentier and Kowalski. That's like JYD. Who's this guy all of a sudden selling out the Super... Not selling out, but who's this guy all of a sudden getting all these people into the Superdome? All of a sudden Carpentier pops up and one summer he draws three crowds. Well, and... More to come. Number 18. And this was August 26, 1985. Gino Brito in Montreal. The promoter drew 21,500 for Bravo and Tonga against Volkov and the Iron Sheik. That's when Vince was still allowing some talent to do something in a market like Montreal that one of his guys was figured in because Bravo had been involved in the promotion there for years. Well, he wanted Montreal. He wanted all of Canada. Yeah. Vin, you got to remember, Vince's plan was all of Canada, and he needed one promoter. And when he got Jack Tunney, that's when it was okay to screw over Stu Hart on that deal. But he was originally just going to have Stu as his guy. He didn't know that the Tunneys were going to, or the Tunneys, that Jack Tunney in the Toronto office was be going to become available. But he wanted Stampede, he wanted Montreal, and he wanted Toronto, and he got it all. He got it all, just like Bogey and Bacall. Okay, where were we at? Uh, 2019, 18, 17, number 17, August 18, 1954. 
Montreal for Eddie Quinn, Yvonne Robert Robert and Pat O'Connor. Wow. And Pat O'Connor. Wow. Not even for the NWA title. It was too early for O'Connor. It was earlier. Yeah. But Eddie Quinn, Montreal was hot at that point. 21,616 people. And then you go to number 16, also in Montreal, July 17, 1957, for Eddie Quinn, Killer Kowalski and Gene Kaniski, 21,851. And that, if I'm not mistaken, would have been for the Montreal version of the world title at that time, would it not? Uh, more than likely it would have. It really is one of those things that a lot of people don't realize, just what a big star Gene Kaniski was before he got the NWA belt. But everywhere he went, he was a main player. He was used as a top guy. He had, from all accounts that we have, good matches with everyone. And look at this. Look at this crowd that he's drawing here. And this is a decade, over a decade before he's the NWA champion. Yeah, well, he got the NWA title based on the reputation he had made in the mid to late fifties working for Vern, drawing huge money, then, uh, uh, working as a world champion for, I think, bruiser, the WWA, right? He held that he held the, uh, what was the offshoot Omaha title? He held that. Yeah. The AWA Omaha had their own AWA title. So, you know, he had already been a big star for like 10 years. And then I've lost count now. The only these aren't numbered. I'm doing them backwards by myself. 2019, 18, 17, 16. Number 15. August 18, 1986. The WWE gets on the board here in Montreal. Hulk Hogan versus Don Morocco drew 23,000 even. Where? In Montreal. In Montreal. What's the date on that in 86? August 18, 1986. Is the Rougeau match on the list uh, uh, versus the well, Garvins? This just lists the the main events. No. So I, I didn't the, remember what the crowd was for that. Wait one. a minute. Hold on. They, they may be uh, Rougeau's and Garvin's. Hold on. They're down because then everything is close together between 17 and 20,000 in the bottom of this list. Because I thought that was 86 and I was just curious how that crowd size would have been versus that WWF one you just said because that was the last hot program they had as an independent promotion outside of WWF. You know what? I don't see did they do more than 17,700? I guess not. That's interesting. I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing Johnny Rougeau and uh, Johnny Rougeau the original and Abdullah the Butcher in Montreal in 69 is on the list. In 69 so is that when did Abdullah become a main eventer in Stampede? It would have been mm-hmm. after that cuz it was after it Archie Gould left. Yeah. This was uh, February 17, 1969. Rougeau and Abdullah drew 18,761 in Montreal. But nevertheless, now you've derailed me. I've lost track of where I was. Okay, Hogan and Morocco. Basically, that was a big WWE house show. It wasn't a major uh, pay-per-view or big advertised event. It was just, again, business was hot. And then we go to July 18, 1956 for Eddie Quinn in Montreal. Edward Carpentier and Argentina Rocca did 23,227. Wow. That's a heck of a main event when you think about who they were, you know, athletically, the style they wrestled at the time and everything. That's an interesting match. That would be... 
what is it? Is that the modern day like Ricochet versus Rey Mysterio? Only <laughs> these guys were full grown. Um, but it had to be green as a pepper tree. Carpentier's brand new. He's only been in the business like what a couple of years. Um, from the time he started, Rocco was. We've seen the the footage unorthodox to say the least and the attraction was the flexibility and the leaping and everything but goddamn he had to be a pain to work with so i bet that one was and also two of the great egos in all of wrestling history do you think working with rocco was like working with mil mascaros in terms of what you could actually do as his opponent i've i've watched a lot of mascaros in you know 70s and 80s stuff and he was a lot easier to work with not easier to beat, but he was a lot easier to work with than Rocco was. He didn't just throw his feet at your face all of a sudden. Yeah, it just all of a sudden, just you don't have the guy's big toe up your fucking nostril. <laughs> all righty, then moving up in the world. On January 31, 1997, in Toronto, the WWE drew 25,628 for Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels versus Sid Vicious. Where? In Toronto. In Toronto. No, but what building does it say? Uh, it does not have the building, but I would assume that was the Sky Dome. I guess that's one of those things that you don't think about a lot as a fan here in America. They were running actually just house shows at the Sky Dome? I remember several house shows at Sky Dome. Again, and this was before the quote-unquote really attitude era got started and kicked in. Again, it would just, you knew if you went to Toronto, you were going to have a, a big house. and. Um, you know, whether it was when I first started, uh, he was still working with Jack Tunney. And then I think Tunney became more of a figurehead and Carl DeMarco was really promoting, you know, or behind the scenes, promoting all the events in Canada by that point. But no, Toronto was always good. But then wait a minute, where are we at? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We are at number seven. And that would be, and I lost my finger place, ah, July 21st, 1960, the seventh biggest crowd in the history of Canada. 1960, interesting. Buddy Rogers? Nope. Killer Kowalski versus Lou Thez in Montreal for Eddie Quinn, 25,703 people. Wow, now that's 1960. Thez was an NWA champion at that no, time. No, I believe, again, it was probably Kowalski. Yeah. Defending yeah. whatever the Montreal title was at that point. Wow, I did not expect that match. That's a surprise to me. And again, that, no, no wonder Eddie Quinn and Luthez were always so close. Yeah. If you ever want to know why Luthez had nice things to say about certain people <laughs> in his book, <laughs> just go look at the results. Okay, and now let, let's do a little math here. Now let's say Thez and Eddie Quinn were close, we know, and Thez was not the NWA champion, so the 10% would not have kicked in. And Kowalski at the time was the big draw in uh, Montreal, and Thez was a legend coming in to face him. So let's assume... Think, well, you don't think he got his 10%? I don't want to go past that. He was still Lou well, Thez. It was 1960. He was still... He was just off that run as the international champion. Yes. After he, after he was the NWA champion, they decided, we still want you as champion. So they just gave him a new belt. Okay, McMahon, but Ed McMahon there, not Vince. I don't want people to think that. You're ruining my bit. What I'm saying is, even though they were friends, he was friends with the promoter. 
And even though Kowalski was a big draw too, even if Fez didn't get his 10%, let's say that he only got his 5%, right? 25,000 people. And even in those days, tickets in Montreal to a stadium, and let's do American money because it's kind of sort of, if, if they were $3, $4 tickets, right? You've got a $100,000 gate there. And one would assume that Thez and Kowalski would both been remunerated for that very well. But if Thez got his 5%, there's goddamn five grand. What is $5,000 in today's money 60 years later? We just talked about it in Indiana. It's about 10 times. That means he went up there and picked up in the neighborhood, give or take, adjusted for Canadian money, whatever, 50 grand. In today's money, oh gosh, if he was if it was only twenty five or thirty, that's what I'm that's what I'm screaming, as Tracy Smothers would say. How many guys, let's say from nineteen sixty on, were able to demand a percentage even if they weren't champion? Fez, the Sheik, Bruno, Bruno. who else, if anyone? Um, in the well, states, Lawler, Lawler, Lawler had ten percent of Memphis before he became a full partner in the in the promotion. I mean, you know, here's the thing. That's why a lot of those guys were able to sell Georgia, the Briscoes. And that was an old deal that the promoters would do when they needed a top talent that was integral to their business. They would say, here, I'll give you three points or I'll give you four points in the office or whatever. So that way, not only did they get, they get their wrestling pay, but if the territory made money, they got a piece of that somehow. That's how. You know, the Briscoes got into Atlanta because when the war happened, Barnett came in and to straighten shit out and make sure they had steady access to the guys from Florida and the world champion, a number of guys got a few points in the in the office. So it, it would depend, probably some people that we never knew because they were just instrumental to the you know, I mean, did Leroy McGurk ever say, hey, Hodge, I'll give you two points in fucking Oak City or whatever? We don't know. I mean, Ron Wright had had a piece of the promotion in East Tennessee under the table for a while before he ran it himself and then blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, I mean, big stars who would just command a percentage of the gate to show up in the modern era, Rogers could do it. Gorgeous George did it at one point. Like we mentioned, the NWA champion, Thez, even when he wasn't the champion, the Sheik in some cases, Bruno to come back and work for Vince Sr. But that was a heavy deal. And that was, well, okay, let's, uh, let's go up one notch uh, from, from uh, Kowalski and Thez to one, two, three, four, number six. July 17, 1972, in Montreal. During you, the war. Would you like to take a swing at who that main event was? 1972, Montreal. Again, this is during the promotional war. Before I answer that, can you just tell me this? Are there any other 1972 Montreal matches above this on the list? No. There is a 1973. Well, I'm going to get this wrong. Andre versus Don Leo Jonathan. You are incorrect. What is it? 
That was at the Montreal Forum. This was the, if I'm not mistaken, the Jerry Park show in Montreal. The Sheik versus Jacques Rougeau. Jacques Rougeau Sr. Sr. Yeah. I will I will I will make sure. Well, that was the only he was the only one at the time. This was 50 years ago. Sheik and Jacques Rougeau were they were on the Rougeau side of the promotion battling the Vachans and the other guys at Grand Prix. And the Sheik was working for them, and that was twenty-six thousand two hundred and thirty-seven people. And knowing the Sheik. Again, it's a $100,000 house. It's Canadian money, but he's the king of Toronto. He's running fucking Detroit. Is he going to come up there for less than five grand and and do a stadium show in the main event? He wasn't hurting for money at that point. He was one of the... That was at the time Detroit was grossing more than almost any promotion in the country because they were on that hot streak, and he was ruling Toronto, and by the way, down later on uh, on this list, down lower, because Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens could only seat 18,000 people, right? So in 1971 and 1972 and 1973, the Sheik has seven matches in a row listed at just 18,000. Sheik and Tiger Jeet Singh, Sheik and Carlos Rocha, Sheik and Pampiro Furpo, Sheik and Andre the Giant. He literally sold out or came close to, as we've talked about, that seven-year win streak in Toronto uh, where he was selling 30,000 tickets a month in fucking Toronto. Anyway. There may be no one in wrestling history who drove more people into the gates and eventually drove them out of the gates. And eventually drove them back out. So, that was the Sheik and Jacques Rougeau on July 17, 1972. Would you care to take a guess what happened at the number five biggest crowd in Canadian history on July 14, 1973 in Montreal? 73 in Montreal. Is it Killer Kowalski? It certainly is. Killer Kowalski versus Andre the Giant. You are incorrect. Maurice Mad Dog oh, Vachon. Oh, shit. That's right. Fuck. Kowalski and Vachon, because Sheik and Rougeau had set the uh, the record in in uh, Montreal the July before, so the Grand Prix promotion came back the next summer and beat it. 29,127 people for Mad Dog Vachon and Killer Kowalski. July 14, 1973. That was the biggest crowd drawn in the the early 70s promotional war. Uh, And shortly thereafter, they... Obviously, the book has been written. Bertrand Ebert and... and, um, Pat LaProd. And Pat LaProd, thank you. I've slept since then. Wrote the book, but the, the two sides through various situations ended up mending fences and coming together and it killed the fucking town. But nevertheless, so the next four, the top four gates, as you would suspect, are all the modern day WWE, but, and we'll talk about those two, but is that incredible that the WWE has owned Canada since the late 80s? 
and all the big shows that they presented there. And the 1950s are the decade where there were more big crowds in Canada than in any other decade in the history of their wrestling. And we must bear in mind that now that we get into the WrestleManias and the big shows, these shows that we are talking about were promoted to the city of Toronto or Montreal. There wasn't national television across Canada or across the United States. There wasn't a worldwide television promotion making its annual big event, you know, uh, there in the town. It was people in and around the cities of Toronto and Montreal that made up those crowds. And in the 50s, this was before... You know, any type of, uh, well, in the 50s and the 60s, really before any type of, you know, modern communications or whatever. So this was just good old-fashioned local promotion. And the the guys being over in the markets. Memphis, same thing too, right? Record crowds, because they didn't run any giant buildings all those years. The record right. crowds were from the 50s or from 59. Well, yeah, because they had to go outdoors because... They couldn't get that many people in the Ellis Auditorium and the Mid-South Coliseum didn't exist yet. So they went for Sputnik Monroe and Billy Wicks. They went to a ballpark. But otherwise, because it was a weekly territory, they never did big shows because they wanted people to think every week is a big show. So, but, um, but again, you know, all of the territory days, these crowds were drawn. People talk about the New Orleans Superdome. And when WWE fills it up now, well, there's not, there's only 10,000 people from fucking New Orleans or even from Louisiana. All the rest of them are from everywhere. But the in those days, you could see if you were an hour and a half or two hour drive from any of these towns, you could see a local show in your town without having to go to New Orleans or Toronto or whatever. And you didn't have to spend your entire salary to take your family. No. And you can come back the next week and still not spend your entire salary. Yeah, because the tickets were $5 and you were only driving 20 miles across town. What do you think wrestling would have been like? I mean, it's a different world and it's a different economy now. But like when you hear things like AEW, and I'm not, this isn't to put down AEW, but just using an example, they didn't get as many people in Queens, but they had their record gate. What do you think wrestling would have been like back then if there were higher ticket prices? Well, it wouldn't have, you know, as I'm saying this, it wouldn't have worked because if you it wouldn't would, have worked, you would no. have priced out your audience. Yes, you would have priced out the mainstream audience. The This was not. It wasn't a hobby for being a wrestling fan wasn't a hobby back then. It wasn't. Except for a few of us, you know, where we, I would collect the magazines and the books and some of it would collect the magazines and the books and the pictures. A lot of times the girls collected my pictures of all of the baby faces and that was their hobby uh but it was just something you did like you went to football or you went to bingo or you went to wrestling or whatever they weren't studying the the ins and outs that weren't even known at the time of the promotions and the people involved there was no place to look up and get all these secrets and all this information you just you watched an hour of TV every week and you went to the matches on Tuesday night. And that's what you did. And millions of people did that. And if you had tried to 
to jack them around because these were working class and blue collar people. And not everybody, as we've seen, we have doctors and lawyers and whatever, or people who grew up to be doctors and lawyers. But you couldn't price it out. There was no high priced merchandise or collectibles. There was no trips across the country to see a major show because you had no idea when a major show was going to happen. You'd read about it in the magazines three months after it took place in Los Angeles or whatever. These were all people of every race, creed, color, national origin coming out live and buying tickets to watch the wrestling matches in their town every week or every month. All right, let's get to the top four. And they're all Toronto. Because once the WWE took over, and Toronto is fascinated with them, February 8th, 1999, Steve Austin versus Mankind drew 41,432 people. Now, what was that show? It wasn't just a house show, was it? I'm thinking that was an in-your-house, was it not? February 8th, 1999. Um, I think, I don't know, you, you can Google it if you want to. And then the one you spoke about, and now let's talk about these attendance figures. August 28, 1986, Hulk Hogan versus Paul Orndorff, 61,470. That was the house show, and again, was that was that exhibition stadium? Or was it a different stadium that they had back then it was exhibition stadium i believe but it was also part of was it canada day i mean it was a big big it was the canadian national exposition or something or other like that but i remember i talked to ed cohen about that they had gotten the opportunity to run in conjunction with this big you know uh exhibition or exposition or function that was going on at the time in toronto And it was going to be treated like a regular house show. But at the same time, obviously, Toronto's a big market. So they gave him Hulk Hogan and Paul Orndorff. That was the hot house show thing they were going with at that time. And Hogan and Orndorff always had great matches. And they ended up shitting themselves when it did 60,000 people. Because they had not expected that. You know, they expected it to do good, but it was over and above anything that they had really done at the time, right? When was the second best at that point in time in 1986? What had been the second biggest WWF crowd to that point in history? Shea Stadium. There you go. And that was 38,000 some? Maybe a little 36, less than 36, what was it? 30. So yeah, Shea Stadium with Bruno and Pedro in, or Bruno and uh, Bruno Zabisco. and Hanson. Bruno and Zabisco and Hanson and Andre. Bruno and Pedro was 72. And, and it, it didn't rained. draw because it rained. Yeah. And the other thing about this Toronto show, it was this event that led WWF and led Vince McMahon to decide on the Silver Dome for WrestleMania three because they saw this crowd in Toronto and knew some of these people would come over the border for that event. Yeah, it was easier to cross the border back then. But yes, yes. So the next biggest house or next biggest crowd that they had drawn up to that point in time was in 1980 with, with Bruno and Zabisco at Shea Stadium. And and Andre and Hogan, I should say. I was thinking of, of Bruno and Hanson in 76 with goddamn Inoki, so I'm all fucked up. 
But yes, Bruno and Zabisco, 1980, Andre and Hogan was underneath. And that was 36,000 or thereabouts or whatever. This was 25,000 more people than they had ever drawn before for a house show. So yeah, they shit themselves. How about the fact that in one week, I think it was the same week. If it wasn't the same week, it was the same month. I think it was the same week. Hogan and Andre were on the Superdome with JYD and Michael Hayes, and they were on Shea Stadium with Zabisco and Bruno. Yes, it was that same week. So they were in uh, in two shows, they were in front of fucking 60,000 people live. And number two, number two on the list of all-time crowds, Toronto, April 1st, 1990, WrestleMania, Hulk Hogan, The Ultimate Warrior, 67,678. And that's what I was going to ask you, because I'm not trying to impugn Vance's integrity. But is that the legitimate crowd, or is that what they announced? I thought it was a little lower than that. I thought it was in the 60s, but I don't want to say that's wrong, because I don't know for sure, but I would have to go check. I thought it was a little less than that, though. And the, the good thing about the territory stuff is, either you could tell because the seating capacity of a, an arena was pretty much cut and dried or the newspapers covered everything fairly legitimately. But with the WWE that they, one, one excuse they gave was they, they count everybody in the building, including the employees and the wrestlers and the ticket people and the fucking concessionaires. And I, Anyway, Hogan and Warrior was number two. And number one, you're not going to... Oh, my God. When I saw this, March 17, 2002, it was obviously WrestleMania. 68,237 people in Toronto. Triple H versus Chris Jericho. Well, that wasn't the main (laughs) event. I mean, that was Hogan and The Rock. Well, and also, when you get to WrestleMania, yes, you're, you're a piece of the puzzle, but... As we've seen lately, that thing's going to draw on its own these days. But And those were the years where Triple H may have been in the main event spot, but he wasn't seen as the main event guy. Again, you had Hogan and The Rock. You had Steve Austin on that show. No yeah. one saw Jericho and Triple H as the main event. But by the power of the pencil. so that. But there you have it. But I again, I thought that's fascinating. Six of the top 20 crowds in Canadian history in the 1950s, thanks to Eddie Quinn. and. Uh, Again, the uh, the uh, the aughts and the teens have not been good to big shows in Canada. But boy, the Sheik sold some tickets. And I mean, there's some other lists in this book, like, uh, you know, wrestlers having headlined an event, drawing 10,000 people or more. The Sheik is in the number one place by far with 94 events that he worked on in Canada, drawing 10,000 or more. And to those uh, events, a million one hundred twenty thousand one hundred eighty-seven tickets sold. Who's number two? Yvonne Robert. What kind of drop from one to two? Ninety-four to sixty-two. Wow. When I'm telling, when the Sheik owned Toronto all that time, and that was the one of the biggest indoor buildings in Canada. Whipper Billy Watson actually has sixty-five number uh, of events headlined, drawing ten thousand or more, but was 15,000 less on the ticket total. Hulk Hogan has 39, Killer Kowalski 48, Carpentier 37 events drawing over 10 and this is 
by the way, obviously, with regular events being more numerous than the big shows that drew over 10,000, we're talking millions and millions of tickets. Steve Austin at 24, Yukon Eric 28, Don Leo Jonathan 24, Andre the Giant 22, Buddy Rogers 20, Luthez 20. Could they have taken better advantage of Bret Hart's fame before everything went south, obviously? Because obviously he's not really on this list. He's well, as a matter of fact, he drew 11 crowds of over 10,000 in Canada because it was at a, he was on top at a period where they had cooled off and right as they were starting to get hot again and, and, and Canada was first, as we've illustrated, that's when he and Vince got on the outs. He took the year off to do TV and let Michaels twist in the wind and then came back and Canada's getting hot and that he's gone. So on he's in that Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Sid match, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, number eight, January of 1997. And by the time they came, so yeah, it, it, it would have, he would have been much bigger. Who do you think is the biggest star in Canadian wrestling history? Whipper Billy Watson or Yvonne Robert? Oh, I got to think, I'm going to say this. I'm going to make the French people mad. Watson translated better to uh, American wrestling also because, you know, he was, he looked like a normal English fellow, right? Bill Potts. Whereas Yvonne Robert, French was his native language. He was primarily Montreal-centric, whereas Watson, I think his profile was larger across the whole country. And then Watson became a name in the United States, which made him a bigger name in Canada. And then, you know, flirted with the NWA title. So I think it has to be Whipper Billy Watson, right? And maybe he had more longevity also, did he not? believe so i have swami barking in the background so <laughs> anyway uncontrolled chaos canada's remarkable professional wrestling legacy thank you vance nevada i'll tell you you know if it wasn't for historians like this brian we would we would be in the dark we wouldn't know what the fuck was going on and that's why now it's it's so important we've got to salvage this history now that the newspapers are online now that all this information, all this research is online, you can just tap into it with the, 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 the touch of a fingertip on the keyboard. But you don't know what you're getting into these days when you get on the Internet, right? It's a, it's a dark and disturbing place. Well, it can be, of course, unless you protect yourself. Well, you got to be protected. You don't, you don't raw dog a hooker behind a dumpster in Jesus. an alley off of Broadway <laughs> no. without being protected. And you don't go to that in the spot, 20 seconds into the spot. I wasn't even in the spot. Raw yet. dog a hooker. What? Jesus. Well, especially <laughs> if she happens to be from Brazil, Colombia. What? Points south like that. You don't want to do, you want to be protected. You want to be covered up. And you know, here's something else. I mentioned this the other day on your program. You don't want to take a shit without closing the door. You're exposing all of your private dangly bits to perusal and examination by others. And that's the same thing. You're, you're exposing your dangly bits with that hooker in the alleyway over the dumpster off of Main Street. 
You don't want to expose your privates. Just lay them out there. Just have them out laying in the sun, ready for everybody to come and step on or kick or puncture or or mistreat in whatever way. You don't want to do that, do you, Brian? I you wouldn't know. lay down on Broadway naked with your legs spread out and your balls hanging over a manhole cover and just let people walk up and kick you in them, would you? Well, not since I was in my 20s, no, but that, apparently that is a big thing. A lot of people like to tan their testicles now. I don't know why, but... Well, but even if you're you tan in your backyard where you could let the, right, the, not the, the polo the ponies roam free, not in the middle of the street where people can look at them and inspect them and mistreat them. Well, that's the same thing you're doing, really virtually, when you're on the internet and you're not protected and you're not covered up and you don't have... You don't have a raincoat over your fingertips, so you don't get any on you. You don't want to get any of this stuff on you. But it, fortunately, ExpressVPN can prevent the four diseases of the apocalypse, the syphilis of the keyboard, the gonorrhea of the internet, the various STDs that you can get from getting on the internet unprotected, and all of it goes into your computer, and it, it'll drive your computer insane. You know, the keyboard syphilis that's going around these days, the, the eventually it's madness and death for your computer. You'll know, if you take your computer's temperature regularly, you'll know by that. That's an early warning sign. But if your computer starts jumping up and down and running around the room and kicking things and screaming, that's a good indication that you have keyboard syphilis so anyway the friends at express vpn they can cover you up on all this stuff no more communicable diseases and no more people staring at your private dangly bits you know your internet service providers they are looking at your dangly bits they know every single website you visit and they can sell this information to the ad companies and the big tech giants who's going to use that data to target you. Have you heard about this? They're targeting you. And now you may be walking down the street on the way home from a, a Cub Scout meeting, and you'll never see it coming. Suddenly, a giant crowbar swings out from behind a tree, and your brains are grape jelly. What are you they're targeting you. What are you they're talking about? You. They're watching you. They're following Who? you. They're Who? targeting you. Who is? I just said. The, the the big ad companies and the tech giants, they're using your data to target you. There may be snipers in the trees. No. You never know. You can't go outside you... because you're being targeted. But ExpressVPN is going to put a stop to it. They're going to create a secure encrypted tunnel between your device. I guess that's what we're calling it these days, your device. Well, you know, the equipment. Yeah, wink, wink, nod, nod. But this tunnel goes from your equipment to the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anybody. Your your equipment will go straight through this encrypted tunnel right into the internet to the porn that you're watching, and nobody's going to be able to see what you're watching. Uh, and you uh, can use... What? Am I telling no, I you that? Keep going. Keep going. You can use Ex ExpressVPN. Ah! You okay over you, there? <laughs> you can use ExpressVPN <laughs> on all your devices. As I said, that's what we're calling them now. It works on everything. Phones, laptops, routers, even 
Diddleator Mach 3. The Diddleator Mach 3, it works on that too. So that way people won't be, you know, you can find those where you can wire them up to the end. You can buzz them from remotely and send people a greeting. Anyway. Raw dog. The best part is using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door or <laughs> picking your your balls up off Main Street, putting them back in your pants and walking on. You can. That's easy to do also. But ExpressVPN, you just fire up the app. You click one button and you are protected. No more communicable diseases that you will contract from the internet service providers knowing everything about you and what you're doing and targeting you for persecution and expulsion and expatriation. Expulsion? Expatriation for They're going to kick you out of the country. They're targeting you. They're on your back. The advertisers? All of them. They they want rid of your ass. Why would they want to get rid of Because you they... know too much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But you want to know how to get... <laughs> well, no one will accuse us of knowing too much, but we're talking about ExpressVPN. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and if you want to know how to get this done, if you're like me, folks... Then we're sorry. We're very sorry. If you're like me and believe your online activity is your business and nobody else's business and a business you need to keep to yourself at all costs, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash JCE today. That's an exclusive link. Expressvpn.com slash jce you'll get an extra three months of this fine protection free don't let your dangly bits get cut and fall off and roll down into a storm drain that's expressvpn.com slash jce three months free and peace of mind knowing that your device will be protected well brian we're going back to canada But this time, the trip is not going to be so enjoyable. No Edward Carpentier, no Killer Kowalski, no Sheik, no Johnny Rougeau, just AEW. They were in Toronto, and as we've mentioned, so much great wrestling over so many decades has been presented there. And the people up there in Toronto, they love the wrestling. And they were as polite to some of this as I guess Canadian fans can be. But um, I don't believe that we're, we're not going to be uh, placing this AEW Dynamite on the list of the biggest gates and crowds in the history of Canada, nor uh, on the list of most memorable programs. There's some things going on, but... Uh, <sighs> What's the biggest story coming out of this program? Jungle Boy has an official real name now that somebody else besides Jim Ross is using? Or was it that we still don't know why Dino is such a douche and turned on his good, close, personal friends? Or is the question, why the fuck are Wardlow and Samoa Joe a tag team? And why do FTR figure into that there's so many questions out of this program none of them drawing money questions just questions 
And you didn't even talk about that Adam Page promo. So there's a lot of questions coming well, out we'll of this Well, we'll get program. to that. You know, Adam Page is not only a black eye in the wrestling industry, he's a black eye in his own face. He's a man. He's a man. But not in the Chicago Transit Authority really cool groove, long extended instrumental version of I'm a Man. Or, or the Spencer the Davis Spencer version. Spencer Davis group <laughs> update. There is no Steve Winwood here, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, all righty. So the top of dynamite, out comes the brand new announcer. They got another announcer. And it is, of course, the inimitable Renee Paquette Moxley Good. She sounds like a British dowager, member of the upper crust. Renee Paquette Moxley Good. And she's obviously John Moxley's wife and is part of the new contract, apparently. Everybody's family gets a job. Okay, she's been a recognized wrestling personality with the WWE on their announce staff and broadcasting staff before. So I got to be honest, I don't know if I ever paid any close attention or if we were even watching the program when she was on it. But all right, let's see. How are they going to feature her on her debut? Is she the sideline reporter that asks incisive questions? Is she giving background information as part of the broadcast team on events that are happening hither and yon in the arena? What pithy part is she going to play in this program? And she came out and was happy to be there and introduced Canada's own Christian Cage and asked this question of Christian Cage. How does it feel to be back in Toronto? And that was the last goddamn thing she said in this fucking So, I'm not knocking her. They didn't give her anything to do. To, she, she's here and she, hey, how's it to be back in Toronto? A, a monkey could have asked that question. So, I I don't know. But anyway, she's here. They didn't give her a question to ask or anything to, to do with this interview. And then Christian knocks Toronto and introduces Dino Douche. And by the time Dino comes out to the stage, Renee is good and gone. <laughs> and that was that. Very good. Very well so done. So then, <laughs> it's Dino versus Jungle Boy Jack Perry. And now they're making an effort to remember Jr. would call it because it was a little ridiculous. Well, there's Jungle Boy. What was he found in swaddling clothes in the nest of chimpanzees on the escarpment in darkest Africa? I mean, I got the look. He looks like a Jungle Boy. He's got the loincloth. But Jr. would always say Jungle Boy Jack Perry because he's not just some random dipshit that was found living with the apes in the jungle. He's the son of a famous Hollywood actor. So now everybody's Jungle Boy Jack Perry. It's like Seth Franklin Rollins. That's everything that's said now all in the same time. So we don't know. Do we yet know why that Dino stabbed Jungle Boy in the back to go with Christian and then pretended that he didn't, but then a week later he did. Do we have, we unraveled this mystery. What did jungle boy take a shit in Dino's post toasties one morning? What happened between these former friends? 
Well, they were best friends, according to Jungle Boy. Best friend ripped his heart out. It really did. But we have no idea what happened. We have no idea what happened and then why it was made out so that he faked him out the first time and then the second time <laughs> he did turn on him. We don't know why they fell out. Remember, I think didn't early on Christian say, remember when I did the Marco? That was dropped. So apparently Luchasaurus yeah. knew of some devious thing that Christian could do. I don't know. I don't know why this feud exists still. Remember what I did to little Marco. Like, isn't it? We should have seen Marco floating down the river with a fucking cement overcoat or something. Apparently Christian's injury is a serious one and it's going to take time to heal. Are they going to draw out this thing with him and Luchasaurus until Christian's ready to get back in the ring? Well, I don't know because it's, it's already drawn. It, it needs to be quartered. So this match, Jungle Boy opens hot. He's feisty. Uh, Dino awkwardly tries to put himself in the right place for the overly complex shit that they're doing. And Dino continues to not work like a big giant muscle builder. He, work, he works awkwardly like a small guy trying to do his flips. Um, within, you know, pretty quick after the match starts, Dino's outside pulling a table up to ringside, which makes the people chant, we want tables. They don't want the baby face. They just want furniture. And they fought on the floor for three minutes straight. Because guess who was the referee? Rick Knox, the corpse referee. So they're on the floor for three. But did you hear what happened to Rick Knox last week? He had an incident. Oh, no. Yeah, he was he was out minding his own business. He was taking a walk. He walked past a cemetery. Two guys ran after him with shovels. He outran them? Well, obviously, he was on television. It's fast. So they come back from a break, and they're in the ring, and immediately they go back out to the floor by the table. And they take forever on the apron, teasing, falling through the table. And then Jungle Boy just runs, and uh, Dino's on the apron, hanging on by the skin of his chinny-chin-chin. And Jungle Boy... Runs across the ring, does a sunset flip over Dino outside, and gives him a power bomb off the apron through the table to the floor. What a fucking bump! And it looked like it killed him and it got a big pop. And I'm thinking, well, okay, they're going to put the kid over. This is a count out. And Jungle Boy get back in. The big goof won't. And we've prolonged this somehow, and it actually is reasonable the way they've done this, that he could win this. And as soon as I said that, Jungle Boy rolls Dino back in the ring. <laughs> the guy that's 100 pounds bigger than he is, he rolls this dead guy back in the ring and gets in the ring himself. And at that point, he does a fucking Undertaker sit-up. Dino douche does. And he's back up on his feet and back on offense. And he's 100%. And they're continuing a match. As well, this fucking guy is even shittier than I thought he was. So at that point, I couldn't wait for this to be over. So I fast forwarded about three minutes. And at that point, I see Jungle Boy Jack Perry give Dino a reverse Hurricane Rana. The stupid move they do that it's a Hurricane Rana, but he's going backwards, so it defies the laws of gravity and, and anatomy and risks breaking your neck, both of them. 
And I'll be a son of a bitch if Dino didn't land straight on his head on top of Jungle Boy. And then he hit another finish before he even covered the fucking guy and got a two count. These guys never went to any kind of accredited wrestling school. I've established that, or they just don't listen. And then after all that and trying to build Jungle Boy up as somebody, Dino choke slams him off the top rope. What a fucking bump again. Then picked him up and hit another finish on him that looked half as good as that and then beat him flat. One, two, three. Instead of giving him an out, instead of, I don't know, protecting him in any way, I'm not talking physically, I'm talking professionally, he just choke slams him off the top and then picks him up and gives him another finish and beats him flat. One, two, three, and that's 20 minutes into the show now. Your thoughts. When he powered back up, that's what I thought. I'm like, wow, they're going to really try to get Jungle Boy with his new name, Jack Perry, over tonight. He's not only going to beat Luchasaurus, he's going to do it after he gets back up from something that should have finished off anyone. Again, someone won a match with a superplex on NXT this week, ladies and gentlemen. And then, no, he just beat Jungle Boy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why um, it went on for a long time. When you said you fast forward to three minutes, I was like, oh, Jim's being unreasonable. But then I remembered... It went past, I think, a couple commercial breaks, didn't it? It went on for a while. It was was 20 minutes into the show by the time that we were done with that. And it seemed longer because it's Luchasaurus and he can't work. He has no concept of what the fuck he's doing. And if he's in with a little small guy that his job is to beat the shit out of him, he gets over. But to have any kind of match with anybody... On a competitive basis, he's an idiot. Who do you think would match Luchasaurus versus Brian Cage? Oh, good God. That would be some kind of matter and antimatter collision, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> matter and antimatter. It'd be the Where, greatest, you know, greatest junior heavyweight match that neither guy's a junior heavyweight. Like Bullet Bob Armstrong used to say, it's a case of mind over matter because I don't mind and you don't matter. All righty. Uh, Private Party and Matt Hardy were in the back arguing with Stokely and the other page and another guy. I don't know what it, I can't remember who he was. He's one of the assistants. He was in a suit. I just burped off microphone. <laughs> so then <laughs> QT Marshall's in the ring with Tomarato and Solo. Did you hear what the stipulation was that they set up in that? Promo? No, I can't. I I couldn't. I, the, Matt's yelling and other. What? What's the deal? What's happening? They're still wasting TV time on this. They haven't learned yet that people don't want to see any of this. They don't want to see Matt Hardy, especially like this. Perhaps if you decided to take it by chance and use Jeff again, but I don't think you could use Matt anymore. The stipulation is now that Private Party wants to be back with him. I guess because Andrade can't be there. Jose, the assistant has somehow finagled a deal so that they've been sold to Stokely Hathaway in the firm. What? And now Ethan Page wants to wrestle Matt Hardy, and if Ethan Page wins, Matt Hardy has to join the firm. But if he loses, I believe Matt Hardy gets control of Private Party once again. They gave TV time to this. They, this is, why isn't this on Rampage? The promo itself. <sighs> 
the firm. He's radioactive, radioactive. I'm surprised you didn't pop on that one. All right, so as I mentioned, QT and Comodato and Solo with Noah Gogo. They're in the ring and QT's talking and here comes Wardlow's entrance. Wardlow is the TNT champion. He's got a belt. And then here comes Samoa Joe. He's the Ring of Honor TV champion. He's got a belt. And it's Wardlow and Samoa Joe. Two people, I love Samoa Joe as a talent and a person. I've worked with him, know him, great. Wardlow, we love as a talent. Never met the fellow. What the fuck business do they have being a tag team and why? And so it's Wardlow and Samoa Joe against Comodato and Solo. And I played with Harley Quinn and rubbed her belly. And Wardlow and Joe won, and the power bombs, and then here comes Brian Cage and the Gates of Agony out with Prince Nana. And I like Prince Nana. Where did he come from? Did we? He's just suddenly everybody okay because on the show last week, or was it the pay per view week before? Here come the gates of agony, the, you know, the fat Samoan guys, and they're with Nana along with Cage because Nana in Ring of Honor that doesn't exist before their Ring of Honor pay-per-view bought all of Tully Blanchard's guys that he managed because Tully quit and went home. (laughs) And now they're on Dynamite. And... Uh, did we miss a- an episode of Dynamite that told us who Prince Nana is? No, and like you said, a very nice guy. I always got along with him whenever I went to those Ring of Honor shows with you. However, there is an invasion, and then there's an infestation. And all of a sudden, this show's filled with way too much Ring of Honor shit all over the place. Not even to disrespect what Ring of Honor is, but all of a sudden, this show's like turned over to Ring of Honor for no good reason. And it's not just this segment. Because, it, well, it's not even Ring of Honor. It's that establish what you're doing. Don't assume everybody already knows. That was a memo we got from Bill Watts 40 years ago. Gentlemen, I know you are all superstars and everyone, in quotation marks, knows everything. But if you're in a stipulation match, explain it. If your promo is about someone remember what you did in the town the last time and talk about it with this guy, whatever, make things make sense. People don't just appear and disappear and wander in and out. Infestation is appropriate not because any of the Ring of Honor guys are necessarily cockroaches, but because by the time you see one or two, there's a bunch more that are Lurking right around the corner, you don't know her there until it's too late. And belts everywhere. There and belts, belts are, everywhere. In every match is a Ring of Honor champion all of a sudden. Big, well, not all Ring of Honor again, though, because Wardlow's the TNT champion. Samoa Joe's the Ring of Honor TV champion. There's one. Then Nana comes out with uh, Cage and the Gates of Agony, and Cage whines about FTR, which brings out FTR with... 
the New Japan belts and the AAA belts and the Ring of Honor tag belts. And then the heels bail to the floor. The crowd obviously chants for FTR because they're the best and most popular tag team in the company and they're being hidden and diminished. So this is where the people got to see FTR. They come out and say, well, there's three of you guys, but there's three of us too. So let's have a match on Friday on the show that nobody watches. And they bring out as their partner against these other three goofballs, Sean Spears. We had forgotten. Where has he been? We don't know and we didn't care. We just thought he was gone and we weren't upset about that status and did not want him to change it. So now it's going to be FTR and Sean Spears on Rampage against Brian Cage and the two fat Samoan guys. And then they hit Solo with their big rig and the baby faces all posed. And they went to a backstage interview. What in the world is... So, just say something. Everyone has their bad ideas and they get on this show. This is one of Tony's. War Joe. First of all, the <laughs> stupidest thing in wrestling is the combination of the two names. Remember there was Jericho? Yeah. And the Swerve in Our Glory, which is the stupidest of all. And now there's this. No, this is the stupidest of all. War Joe. The fuck kind of name is that? Why are these guys in a tag team? Wardlow has been completely misused. So let's put him in a tag team and another guy we haven't done anything with. Samoa Joe. FTR, the most popular tag team in the company, have had the best tag team matches in this country and in other countries, I guess, too, now. So what do we do with them? Nothing. And whenever they show up on TV, they get a massive pop. And you can almost sense the disappointment from the fans when they realize nothing's going to happen right now. Nothing at all. They just came out, and now they're off the show. That's it. The booking of the show sucks. There's a lot of people being misused. And several of them were here. And again, there's too much Ring of Honor all over the show. The Ring of Honor tag team champions were in this match. The Ring of Honor TV champion was in this match. Jericho's the Ring of Honor world heavyweight champion. Garcia's the Ring of Honor pure champion. Ring of Honor people like Nana, who have never been exposed to this audience ever before, just show up. They just show up and they're treated like we're supposed to know who the fuck they are. <laughs> and they're not the only ones. There's been other people. And, you know, the other thing that sucks is Ian Riccoboni, who I really like, he's on here and he has to, like, everything's like about, like, defending Ring of Honor, like, later on with Jericho. Like, oh, we have to defend the honor of Ring of Honor. Like, what? It just none of this is good right now with the Ring of Honor involvement. Tony's forcing it onto the shows, and it's not working. Well, speaking of forcing things on the show that are not working, it's time for Chris Jericho and Cool Hand Luke and Daddy Mac Mac Daddy in the back screaming upset about Danny Garcia not returning his phone calls. And Jericho says he's going to out-wrestle Brian Danielson, and I'm sure he is, since now that everybody else is suspended or hurt or gone away or licking their wounds jericho's right there in tony khan's left ear and right ear he's the devil and the angel on the shoulders all at the same time sitting right next to mega well there you go you got you well, you got mega on one side and jericho on the other side 
I wonder if Tony feels like the meat in an idiot sandwich. You know, I have to say, in the middle with you, beyond Jericho being Jericho, and he's just atrocious. 2.0 have grown on me, and I wish they weren't doing this anymore. Jericho, break them away and let them do something else. But the one who I didn't think had much personality on the mic all of a sudden is showing a little bit. And luckily, he's not over the top like his partner, who's just like, I'm assuming he's not coked up, but that's the greatest coked up wrestler I've ever seen on a show. They've grown on me. I just hate the way they're used. Because if you do stuff with Jericho, it's this childish, raw mentality that takes place in like another world from the rest of the show where everything's dumbed down and takes forever. And I wish they were used better because they've... Show me they can do promos, and I actually like them in the ring. Well, I tell you, speaking of liking something in the ring, they actually did something that I did like, and they've got something going, and it's over, and by the end of this, they managed to shit on it, too. Billy Gunn versus Swerve. The crowd was singing... Well, you know that Keith Lee thing, and bask in my glory, or whatever, scissor me daddy. This, it's incredible. This is such bullshit, and they're loving it, and it's over, but it's not bullshit that makes the whole business look fake. It's bullshit that makes these baby faces look like they're crazy. It's updated fucking handsome Jimmy Boogie Woogie Man Valiant. Billy Gunn's 58 years old. Looks great, and he's more over than ever. And a pro wrestling match broke out. I couldn't believe it. They were actually working. Billy's not going to go out there and do all that stupid bullshit. He's a pro. He hot-dogged like a baby face for a little bit, and then he got cut off, and the heel gets heat on him. They go through a break. They come back. A little bit more heat. Billy hits a tilt-a-whirl. Both of them sell. Billy makes a comeback, hits a jackhammer. Goes for the famouser, misses that or is foiled in that. Swerve takes over, gets a nice two count. Then they do back and forth a little bit, and Swerve rolls through and grabbed the rope, which had to be a Billy Gunn finish because not only was it a nice match and a nice finish, but good position on the finish. And I would have to think that none of these other numb nuts know how to position themselves for shit like this. So. Billy gets in there, gets Swerve over, has a nice, uninsulting segment. And as soon as it's over, and and obviously Billy needs to do the job because Swerve, and if we ever see Keith Lee again, the other part of the tag team that they're fighting, um, then the acclaimed needs to get even for Daddy getting beat. And so everything was fine, and it made perfect sense. And then here comes Mark Sterling and Tony Nese out on the stage. And I swear to God, if you if you said to somebody, this team is red hot, the fans love them, they're, they're loving just silly shit that they're doing, they're just captivated by them, how can we involve them in people with people that nobody cares about in such a way that we will take away the thing that's making them popular? <laughs> I've got an idea. So Mark Sterling, the fake lawyer, comes out and says that he's trademarked the phrase scissor me 
And so that means that the acclaimed Billy Gunn can't do it anymore. And they start to do it anyway. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'll sue you. So now they're standing there like dicks, like this fucking putz that everybody could see is a fake. A mile away, Mark Sterling. He's not a lawyer. This is bullshit. And he doesn't do it well because it's phony and he's winking at everybody and it's over the top comedic. He's playing the part of a heel manager lawyer. And nobody gives a shit about Tony Nese because nobody's ever seen him win a fucking match. And this is garbage. And they bring and they put these the acclaimed in with this preliminary bullshit as a red herring and take away their scissoring. What the fuck? What in the world does Sterling have pictures of Tony wanking a dog? Your thoughts? I don't know about these pictures, but the Wrestling News will report them if they turn up. I don't know why. I told you before. There are certain guys that make you cringe as soon as they come out during a segment. As soon as Mark Sterling's voice was heard, I said, oh no, why are you going to ruin this again? I don't care if he's a nice guy. He's been used like shit, so that's the way we think of him. I love Swerve as a heel. Man, every time I see Swerve, I'm more and more sold on Swerve. Yeah. Billy Gunn probably wakes up in the morning and says, I can't believe this is happening to me. <laughs> Again, I can't believe this is happening to me. They just had a DX reunion. And look at the position he's in. He's actually happening right now. Yeah. The acclaimed are over. And I worry about how over they'll be when the booking gets done with them. Well, speaking of that worry, for the first time, I see an MJF segment and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. I'm not. MJF was with Officer Bar Brady, our friend Alex Marvez, and Stokely comes in and MJF talks down to him, which was fine. And he was very condescending. Strike two, because he's fucked up a couple times now. One more and you're fired. And then he talks about, you know, William Regal and the situation there, and he doesn't know if he would have shaken Wheeler Useless's hand. But this whole thing was, you don't know what it's like to be MJF. You don't know what it's like to be the bad guy. I wrote, what's going on here? This is getting deep, and I'm not talking about psychologically as much as the bullshit factor. Are, are they trying to set him up to be a sympathetic figure? You don't know how hard it is to be the bad guy. Or is this something that he thought of saying and it, it he did it on his own and it didn't necessarily land because the last thing that we... I can understand him whining about how hard it is to be him and his greatness. That's a heelish thing. But it sounded like he was trying to be taken somewhat seriously and or uh, commiserated with over it by the manner in which he said it. Are you, is your butthole quivering here, Brian? No, that's my chair you're hearing. Well, you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying and you know what I'm saying. I think, you know, MJF's in a weird position right now because he's kind of hitting and missing at the same time because his stuff's been great except for the Stokely stuff and it really hasn't been laid out properly. 
I mean, there were other members of this faction. They just randomly appear at random times on the shows. I don't know if they're all out there together other than a couple of promos they did. Either he's going babyface or they're pretending he's going to well, go babyface, and he's not. I mean, it's one of two things here, but... That's what I'm worried about. Firing the guy, you don't know what it's like to be me. There's more to this story. It sounds like they're dropping seeds to make him a babyface, which will pretty much destroy the whole goddamn aura of the thing. You know, part of the problem is there are people whispering to Tony that MJF should be a babyface, that he needs to yeah, be a babyface. Yeah, all, all, all the fucking top heels that can't compete with him. That's who thinks that. All righty, moving on. Tony Schiavone was in the ring, and here comes Plumber Moxley from the parking lot. And immediately Moxley takes the microphone, and Tony goes and stands in a corner like a child that's been chastened about his behavior. <laughs> and, and if you'd see him in a camera shot when Moxley was talking, he wasn't even watching Moxley like 10 feet away from him. Like, wow, this is a champion talking. He's just sitting there looking down, contemplating why he's been sent to the corner. And why are they going to have an interviewer in the ring if the guy just takes the microphone and just blows him off, doesn't even speak to him, and he just goes and stands in the fucking corner? Well, someone has to introduce him so he knows that when to come through the crowd. He's waiting back there. If no one cues him, what's he going to do? I thought at first Moxley was wearing a kilt. But then I found that it was, it, on closer inspection, it was his extra flannel shirt that was tied around his waist under his leather jacket. It's Toronto and it's October. And now he decides to take off one of these 15 layers of clothing <laughs> that he wears and tie it around him. But again, you're standing in the back way. You're just pacing around waiting for some kind of sign that it's your time to walk through the crowd. Yeah. You start sweating. You take off your flannel shirt. You tie it around your waist so you don't lose it. Makes perfect sense. I would have taken off the leather jacket. It seems to be excessive for indoors, especially in the summertime, but nevertheless. You don't look as cool walking through a crowd in a flannel shirt I got, as you do I got, walking through I got a leather jacket. For you. I got news for you. They could fucking freeze Plumber Moxley in a goddamn ice flow and he wouldn't look cool. But they're in the right country to do it. This was a good promo about how tough it is to be the world champion and what he's got to go through. It was a good promo. I'll give him that. And I think he had a goddamn in here. So between him and MJF, it was two goddamns and a shit somehow on the program so far, even though they've been bleeping shit on both WWE and AEW programs. He's still the champion. He got go fuck yourself on TV. <laughs> yeah, well, I, but that was live. But I've, I always thought goddamn was worse than shit. I don't know. We ought to have a list. See what's worse. But anyway, he did a good promo. And then he mentioned Hangnail Page's name and instantly the music and the entrance. And so, again, it was like, this is the setup part of this dramatic presentation where now the music plays and the other guy comes out. It's his cue. And when Page started talking, I was just wondering if he was going to go into business for himself with Moxley like he did with old Punk. Probably not, since... You know, um, Moxley seems more amenable to playing with the children than chastising them for their unprofessional behavior. But anyway, here we go. MJF's in the skybox watching all this because he's got a title shot anytime he wants it. Page puts Moxley over as a great all-around guy and a friend of furry woodland creatures. 
but he's upset because it's his big chance. And he's pissed, Paige is, that Moxley had called him a nice kid. Am I a kid to you? And basically Moxley said, yeah, I think you're a kid. Adam Page has, he said all the words here, but he has zilch in the way of promo charisma. Where he makes, he doesn't make you think that it's him talking, he's reciting shit. He doesn't put inflection or emphasis into a lot of it. It's just his same blank stare and monotonic voice. Except when he flips out as he does every once in a while, and as he did here. Remember before he had the nervous breakdown, we thought when he was going into business for himself with Punk. Now he had a nervous breakdown and started screaming about all his friends disappearing and he's depressed. And the medicine isn't working, but I'm still here because I'm a man. And to illustrate this point, he worked himself up into a, a frenzy screaming, I'm a man, while he was punching himself in the face. Now, bear in mind, when Mick Foley as mankind did that, because he was supposed to be a fucking psychopath and he was believable in that in that part, and it was something that you would think that that lunatic, that disfigured, maimed, masked weirdo would do, well, yeah, that worked, but when it's this fucking butterfly jean-wearing pisshead of an, if, if, what, did, what was it, empty-headed guy that's done nothing in the business, claiming to be a cowboy, that's standing there over and over screaming, I'm a man! And punching himself in the face. As far as acting goes, Brian, this, I think, was a tour de farce performance. Yeah, and I don't think you're doing it justice. I'm actually trying right now to find the audio of him screaming, I'm a man, because it was one of the most ridiculous things. Even if you want to get into it and try to give him a chance here, as soon as he starts yelling, I'm a man! You want the but fans? Then- is that what the fans are supposed to chant? You are a man! After he flipped out and did that and punched himself in the face, and by the way, he got like a drop of blood out of it, but he gave himself a fucking swollen eyebrow. You could see it puffing up. Then he calmed back down and and continued talking normally and told Moxley off and then walked out. I don't know what to think about this fuck. I mean, I guess if you already liked Adam Page, you thought, wow, boy, what a promo, but like most people, since they don't already like him, they thought, what the fuck is with this fucking guy? He just, he sounds, he acts like a nerd trying to be a cowboy. Do you have any audio at this point? Yeah, hold on. I better go to this audio right now. Here's Adam Page in the ring with Moxley explaining who he is and what he is. Let's go to this. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. The medicine is not working, but I am still here because I am a man. I am 31 years old. I'm a former world tag team champion, a former world champion. I've watched my family members be lowered into the ground, and I've brought new life into this world just like you have. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I've been choked till my face turns blue 
and I've been beaten in that same face over and over, and I keep coming back because. And now he's punching himself in the face. And the other problem, too, is all this is happening and the fans are popping for MJF. <laughs> yeah, sitting yeah, in the fucking skybox. MJF is in the spotlight up there in the skybox laughing at all this. Oh, my God. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I contribute to charity. We're seeing too much of that, too. How many guys, two guys this week, Bray Wyatt and him, do the promo now like, in the last couple of years, I've buried people. It's happened to everyone. Malachi Black did it also in his thing. The last few years have been rough. We put people in the ground. This is three different people in wrestling in the last two weeks that are talking about the same thing. Well, let's we'll hold it. We'll get to Bray Wyatt when we talk about SmackDown. But um, but yeah, so Paige basically is blah or a maniac, one or the other. He's, there's no in between. And that was that. And then we come. Well, Moxley no sold it too. That's important to say. Oh, Moxley's just standing there staring at him like he's goddamn <laughs> lunatic. And that's the thing. If, if I'm Moxley, I'm going to go, besides drinking his bones and eating his blood or whatever, I'm going to go, well, you know, geez, if the guy's willing to stand in front of me and beat his own self up so I don't have to, even better. Easier for me. Moxley's like, this guy's nuts. And by the time <laughs> have to match, his eye's going to be swollen up. Maybe he'll break anyway. his own leg next. <laughs> yeah, can, can you break your own leg for me? I'd like to, I'd like to grind it to make my bread. So... Then the Ring of Honor title match that they've advertised, Chris Jericho, who's going to destroy the honor of Ring of Honor against Brian Danielson. And they brought Ian Riccoboni in, as you said, and he should be in Sockface's spot as the lead AEW announcer. He's the best young wrestling announcer that I know of in the industry today and does a great job and is very camera-friendly, blah, 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 but instead we got this fucking pretend, phony, wannabe, ex-outlaw wrestler who still clings to his own delusional memories of the non-existent past triumphs he's had in the industry and presents himself on TV as a veteran wrestler. Healy says something. What does Shivani say? Why Shivani in the third seat? To do what? To do what? He says nothing. I'm not disagreeing and, and with you. And you don't disagree with me. I'm not disagreeing with you. So, but anyway, Jericho and Danielson. These guys have worked umpteen times. Danielson's brilliant. Jericho was in Toronto, and I've got to give him this. He upped his current game. He worked hard on this. Even the hurricane run off the top rope, going to the break. The crowd, of course, was singing Judas a cappella, which is, again, the heels music, <laughs> but still. So Jericho worked like he took 10 or 15 years off. It's Danielson. They had a good, logical, back-and-forth match. The people were more into this than any WWE TV crowd is into the match, because even though AEW has the rottenest most unprofessional matches their crowd wants to go to see good wrestling matches whereas the wwe has the most professional professionally executed matches they're not ridiculous or dangerous or nonsensical you know phony in that respect but their crowds are not there to see the wrestling matches so 
I don't know. Anyway, Danielson got to Boston Crab on Jericho. The fans loved it, chanted, this is awesome. Uh, Danielson went for the elbows. Jericho Fireman's carried him out, missed a lion salt. Danielson hits a knee. Uh, you know, uh, but again, he went for it. And, and then the third time, Jericho turned it into a code breaker, got a two count. I mean, they're not dogging it. They're working hard. And finally, Jericho shoves Danielson into the referee. And old Daddy Mac tosses one of the championship belts, however many they have, to Jericho. And he milks using it. And he was standing there while Danielson was standing up. Jericho looked frozen in cement. And I'm thinking, what the fuck? What is he waiting on? Why is he just going, get up, get up? Why do you have to wait for the guy to get up before you hit him and knock him back down again? And then I realized, because here comes Garcia, old Danny Garcia, running down to the ring with another belt. He's the Ring of Honor pure champion. And he's running down with his belt, but then he drops that belt to roll in the ring and pull Jericho's belt away from him. So that was what was going on. Jericho was waiting for Danielson to stand up, Danielson didn't want to stand up until he saw Garcia coming because then if he stood up, Jericho would have to hit him and he wasn't supposed to hit him. And apparently Garcia was a day late and a dollar short getting down there. So finally, he runs down with a championship belt, drops that belt to roll in the ring and pull the belt that Jericho's got away from him. And then as Jericho turns around, Danielson hits him with a big knee, boom. And then Garcia is holding that belt that he's just pulled away from Jericho, and he rushes over and wipes out Danielson with it. Ladies and gentlemen, Shitstain is all elite. A standard, nonsensical, illogical WWE slash Shitstain style swerve If Garcia was going to turn on fucking Danielson, then why did he run down and pull the belt away from Jericho, who was about to hit Danielson over the head? And then Jericho covered him one, two, three. So now, Garcia, after weeks of back and forth about whether he was a wrestler or a sports entertainer, has turned heel and joined back with Jericho and the sports entertainers. And by Garcia turning heel and knocking the baby face out with a title belt and fucking him out of the ring of honor title, he got a huge baby face pop for doing that. So what the fuck's going on here? It's terrible. I mean, it's terrible. Jericho is just taking over the show. It's total nonstop Jericho, as I said previously. But Jericho's going to do everything in his power to get Garcia to be his guy. Moxley's doing everything in his power to have Yuta as his guy. And these guys are being force-fed on the show. Garcia would have been a lot better before he started talking. And then every time he talked, it sounded like a child saying child shit. Because that's all Jericho's programs. Danielson, 
man, a guy, he went from being one of my favorite guys to I don't even, like, it doesn't make me pause anymore when he's on TV. Remember when he was doing those great interviews, those live interviews in the ring where he was such a subtle, smarmy little heel and just brilliant? When's the last time we heard him talk? Did he go to AEW just to coast or is it just he's a fantastic wrestler who does not want to sp- I was going to say he does not want to speak up and say I'm not going to do bad shit but unless he doesn't think it's bad shit, but it's terrible the way he's been used. It's atrocious the way he's been used. Jericho's now beat him twice, I think. No. He beat him in the uh, stadium match where he got concussed, and then he beat him here. Did he beat him a third time? I can't remember. I don't, all I can remember is fucking Killer Kowalski and Mad Dog Vashon in Montreal. If Danielson as a heel had continued to develop at the point where they just completely decided to make him a babyface with the Blackpool group, he should have been in the top heel spot where Jericho is right now. The show would be better right now if we had a heel Brian Danielson with whatever world championship at this point. They've made titles meaningless. Everyone has a belt. Everyone has a belt. The people in the match have belts. The people running in have belts. <laughs> Technically, the, the people, the people that, have belts on their laps. Everyone the has people, belts. The people that need to run in and snatch belts away come down with belts they have to drop so they have hands free to grab more belts. But everyone's a champion. Everyone has a belt. They've made it meaningless. Again, Danielson could have been the top heel, or, you know, as as top a heel as anyone could be other than MJF. But instead, we got all this Jericho shit, and I'll give him credit. I think he's working as hard as he has in a very long time in the ring. Of course, it's so he can make sure that he books himself to beat everyone. Right. But he's looked the best he has physically in the ring in a very long time. Well, but that was not all of the program because the world title match and everybody's smart has a 60 minute time limit. So they put it on earlier in the program so that, you know, people wouldn't be smart. Well, why does the world title match always end right on schedule? But now they had 30 minutes left in the show. And while that's a good idea to put the title match on early in case it would go longer, you got to have something else. To put on afterwards. So they come back after Brian Danielson versus Chris Jericho with Tony Storm and Hikaru Shida against Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter. And this was 100 miles an hour, back and forth, nonstop, making no sense whatsoever. A bunch of girls doing all the moves they've figured out how to do and been practicing to each other, one in turn, until finally Shida rolled up Britt Baker. And now you ask, what's their main event going to be? For the A&P title. A&P? Well, yeah. Well, remember, I've, I've mentioned this. That's the original title. of You know, if you ever went down to the A&P grocery store with Aunt Lola to pick up a few things, the A&P was the Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company. When they started the 1800s, that's, and then they grew into the A&P grocery giant. So this is the A&P championship, the Atlantic and Pacific, because they can't keep track (laughs) of which body of water these various people come from. Yeah, someone sent me an image the other day they said was from AEW. I don't know for sure, but it had like a Chinese flag. And they said, what part of the Atlantic is China from? (laughs) Yeah. So it's the A&P title. And the A&P title was going to be defended by PAC 
against pockets. And I can't tell you how many people on Twitter that when I got up the next day and I turned on the Twitter machine, says somebody checked on Cornette. Is Jim Cornette all right? They put a title, they put a championship on pockets. Did anybody think that I would be mad that a pretend wrestler won a fake title in this company? I didn't watch this for for another reason, because why would you? I'm only watching the serious shit. And even some of that, even though they may intend it to be serious, is not serious. So, uh, but again, you know, they did me a favor here. I got skipped 15 minutes of AEW. But wasn't the idea of the all-Atlantic title because Pac is from the United Kingdom and they wanted to give him something because he's supposed to be a serious top guy? We heard he was signed for a multi-year contract. He's been there. He's been gone. He's been back and forth. He looks like a million dollars and can't put a match together to save his fucking life if you held a gun to his head and his family was being dangled over a cliff. Apparently, he still couldn't put a fucking match together. It makes sense, but he's still supposed to be one of the serious top guys, right? And Pockets beats him and wins the meaningless Atlantic title. And the only ocean or body of water that I know of that Pockets has any connection to would be the one that hopefully he's going to be drowned in someday. Oh, stop it. So we don't have to look at this anymore. But otherwise, what what in the world sense did this make to take the... It was like when they... The WWF in, what was it, 97, they made the European title specifically for Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, and to open up more markets in the UK and et cetera. And then Michaels fucked him around on that pay-per-view and wouldn't put him over like he was supposed to. And then... It went downhill from there. It ended up D'Lo Brown was the European champion at one point. I love D'Lo. He's one of my favorite guys in the world, but he didn't have any connection to Europe. All right. Anyway, so that was the last half hour of the program, the girls tag and the joke match. So what was the ratings? Where did they go on those last two segments? Well, let me get you the quarterly breakdowns. I'm trying to find the overall rating. Uh, I want to say it was 900-something. And Where is it? Uh, the overall rating was 983,000 viewers. And here's the quarterly breakdown. Now, last, last week, they started at 1.2 million and ended up at a little under 900,000, right? Or was it last week was 1.1 1. 1 and, and ended up at 800,000? They lost 300,000. Right. Right. This so year. they ahead. started, where'd they start here and where'd they end up? Quarter one with the debut of Renee Paquette, Christian Cage's promo, and Jack Perry versus Luchasaurus, 1,069,000 viewers. Segment two, which is more of Jack Perry versus Luchasaurus, as well as The Firm and their issues backstage with Private Party, and Matt Hardy... <laughs> Did 1,045,000 viewers. I can't believe they never teamed up as a six-man tag team called Party Hardy. Don't give them any ideas. That is, that's not bad, though, actually. <laughs> Segment three, or quarter three, Samoa Joe and Wardlow 
versus QT Marshall and Nick Camarado, plus the Embassy and FTR and Sean Spears, plus the Jericho Appreciation Society promo, plus Swerve Strickland versus Billy Gunn, 1,071,000 viewers. So that segment went up from the previous mm. one. Quarter four, the end of Swerve Strickland versus Billy Gunn, including Tony Nese and Mark Sterling's involvement, as well as the acclaimed. MJF's promo, as well as the beginning of John Moxley's promo, 998,000 viewers. So they're, they're still in the realm of reason there. They're up, they're down, but they're, they're in the groove. But that was the biggest drop so far. That was a drop of 73,000, but we're going now to the 9 o'clock hour. 9 o'clock hour begins with John Moxley and Hangman Page in the ring, followed by Jericho versus Danielson. 983,000 viewers. Jericho and da- the, the world title match dropped. Right. It was down another 21,000. The next segment, which is quarter six, the end of Jericho versus Danielson, as well as Nyla Rose's promo, 963,000 viewers. Quarter seven, Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter versus Hikaru Shida and Tony Storm, 879,000 viewers. Ooh. Down 84,000. The biggest drop of the night. And following that is quarter eight. For the All-Atlantic Championship, the prestigious All-Atlantic Championship, Pack versus Orange Cassidy, 857,000 viewers. They lost from the girls' tag. Woo! So, every week. It's every 850, week. and they started with, what, a thousand, or a thousand, <laughs> yeah, a million seventy-something, or eighty-something thousand. And people saw that MJF wasn't going to be in the first few segments, and a lot of them tuned out when they didn't see any teases for a big MJF thing later on. Jericho has proven that he's not going to pop any number. He's okay to just hold things in place. He's smart enough to get himself out of that main event spot. He got himself to the 9 o'clock hour right after it. And then Orange Cassidy versus Pac Lickson. You don't like Orange Cassidy. I'm not a fan of Orange Cassidy. There are people who love him. Is he as hot today with them as he was three years ago? I don't think he's drawing anyone extra. I don't think anyone's going out of their way to see him at this point. And every week, and I hate to say it, the women's match causes a hemorrhage of viewers. No matter what part of the show it's in, it seems like. And usually it's always in the same part of the show. But it causes a mass exodus of viewers. And we could all like women's wrestling. We could all like the best women's wrestlers out there. And we could all want the best for it. But there's a reality that needs to set in at some point. Well, you know what? When you're hemorrhaging, that's not a good thing, Brian. It's not good to hemorrhage. What are you going to transition to? This is this can't be it's, good. It's not good to hemorrhage. <laughs> and and I thought you were going to say, it, 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 you know, the, the hemorrhoids, because it's not good to have the hemorrhoids either. Why did you think and, I would say that? Well, it, it's it, that one of those hem words, hemorrhoids, hemorrhage, it goes right <laughs> in together. Sometimes you have hemorrhoids and they hemorrhage. And I'll tell you what, you can stay off the hemorrhoids and the hemorrhaging in one simple way. That's the last thing you want to do is wake up first thing in the morning and either have a hemorrhoid or have it hemorrhage. What what emissions or evacuations are you performing over there at the Wrestling News slash Arcadian Vanguard slash 605 
headquarters this week. Well, of course, we're covering all the news on the wrestling news every day. Free wrestling daily newscast every morning. Go to thewrestlingnews.com or look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News wherever you find your favorite podcast. Hey, did you fall asleep in the middle of Raw? Or perhaps you fell asleep in the middle of Dynamite. Did you forget Rampage existed? Did you hear someone die and you don't know who? You want to know the ratings? You want to hear all of this with no spin? Check out the Wrestling News today for the first time ever. Wrestling News. Just the Wrestling News. That's it. No clickbait, no paywall. Just the Wrestling News. Also want to make mention of the other fine shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes here. The latest two episodes of Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam have been a look at Smoky Mountain Wrestling, including Scott, hey! Hey, including hey. Scott Cornish on the show talking about Smoky Mountain Fan Week with John, as well as a look at the promotion. What do you think all these years later? Podcasts still dedicating their time to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Well, I'd like to thank all of the current wrestling promoters for being so uninteresting we have to go back 30 and 40 years and more. Did you ever think back then in the midst of all of it, and again, there was a lot of crazy shit happening all around during Smoky Mountain Wrestling, but did you ever think about the idea that people in 30 years would be looking back at what you did, that it is a legacy, it is a body of work that's yours? You know, at the time, not so much, because obviously we were just struggling to get next week done. But on some level, I knew because I wanted to do what the other territories hadn't, at least with video, and that's keep my TV shows and keep most of the, you know, major events and et cetera, which so many other promotions had not kept their libraries of TV shows or whatever. So I knew that. I was going to be watching it 30 years later, like I was watching all the tapes I'd already collected. I didn't know whether a ton of other people were going to be or not, but I'm glad they were. It, And as we've talked about, it holds up because it's just, it's wrestling. It's not tied to any time period. It's not the 90s grunge like ECW, or it's not, it wasn't tied to a ridiculous amount of pop culture influences. It was wrestling with wrestlers and personal issues, which as we know from the sign over Jerry Jarrett's desk, personal issues draw money. We'll hear more about Smoky Mountain Wrestling on Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam at McAdamPod.com or look for Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who's been going through the archives. It's kind of surprising sometimes to see just how many people are still checking out the old episodes of the 605 Super Podcast. More to come. Go through the archives at 605pod.com or look for the 605 Super Podcast wherever you find your favorite podcast, The Mothership. Yeah. 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 You'll do another one some of these days if you don't have four children and 18 other shows and 14 YouTube channels and a partridge in a pear tree. And that's just the wrestling portfolio. All righty. Smackdown. That just happened. What? Not even 24 hours ago. Uh, on October 14th, 
We must give equal time to the WWE here, now that we've gone over AEW's misgivings and shortcomings. And there was a couple of things on this program that I liked. A couple of things I'm not sure what's going on. But did you see the, the very open of the show? They start out in the parking lot, and there's Karrion Cross and Scarlet, and they're kind of selling and bent over. The, there's a car that's run into another car. It's a fender bender. There's steam coming off of it. The alleged security are there taking down statements. And all of a sudden, here comes Drew McIntyre and jumps on Karrion Cross and beats a bejesus out of him. And there were people there, and there, Adam Pierce was there, and they're trying to get him apart, and it was violent, and it was chaotic, and it didn't last too long. They were serious about it. That's if the only drawback to this was that we've seen everybody, major talent, minor talent, no talent, fighting in parking lots and, and et cetera, and backstage like this on every show, which is why that it now doesn't mean anything anymore. But when you get main event guys like this that look serious and didn't last too long, and they tried to go a, a few extra feet to make it look like something this is why this would have impact and connect with people if they didn't see it on every program but they did this well and then they immediately start the program with xavier woods and kofi kingston the new day coming out singing and dancing and joking in the aisle way and doing their thing and it's completely different fucking tone you go from this is wrestling. These guys are going to beat the shit out of each other to what the fuck is this? High school community drama. Um, That's what happened to me. I was kind of getting into it just from the opening segment because it was a little bit of a different feel and a look to what they would usually do to start a show. They're trying to heat up this program. They've already had fire and mace. Now, some sort of car accident. I saw a car crash. My first thought was, oh, Jeff Hardy's back. Mm. But they go from this to the new day. And I'm not a New Day fan, as everyone knows, but like you said, the tone, even if you are, you go from something serious to grown men acting like children. That's where you lose me. Well, it, it didn't last too long right there. They did their interview, and the first match going to be Kofi against Sammy. And Sammy's in the back with Jay Uso and Solo, and they're talking about the recent events, and Roman calls on the phone. And Roman tells Jay that he better not screw up like he did last Monday. Sammy needs to win this thing tonight. And again, you know, Sammy's great. So they go to the ring, Sammy and Kofi. And the bell rings for the first match. It's nine minutes into the show. <laughs> and they go 30 seconds of action and they go to the break. And I'm what? The f so again, they... They make sure to let everybody know that the talking and the music and the tapes are important, but the matches, well, that's time to go get a sandwich. So they come back, and th they had a good match. And like I said, Sami Zayn is great. Both this, the personality that he's showing in this and his work has always been good. As I've mentioned many times, he was just a pain in the ass when he was a mute luchador. But both guys are painfully thin in this, and Sammy's working with the T-shirt and et cetera, and I know the T-shirt's part of the deal, but it starts to look, the visual is a little, eh. Anyway, they went through another break. 
And finally, they did a finish. And again, great timing and great positioning on the finish. Kofi rolls Sammy up, but Jay reached in with a kick behind the referee's back and reversed the roll up. One, two, three, and Sammy won. And Jay did what he was supposed to do. And of course, Sammy's hot dogging. And the, the finish was fine. And there's nothing wrong with the match. It's just, again, I think this audience, their audience, has been conditioned that the match is the least important thing of the proceedings. Uh, what do you think? I'm into the Sami Zayn story with Jey Uso. Jey Uso's been great. Solo Sokoa's actually been pretty good in his role, too. But I can't stand the New Day. And I know a lot of people there love all three members because of the way they've been used and the way they've embraced being used, I just don't like it. It's not for me. So I kind of tuned out or zoned yeah. out of this match. Well, by the time that they went back in the back to Triple H, who now have we noticed that apparently the evil regime is a thing of the past. Apparently they finally realized, maybe they all realized all along, but they couldn't convince Vince. Bingo. Well, that's because it's been 25 years. And the reason why they find themselves in this position, not only having lost viewers, but also having lost the goodwill of the fans and having, having to, I mean, let's face it. If this was the WWE of old, the contest as it is between them and AEW wouldn't be nearly this close. If they hadn't run off several hundred thousand devoted fans that are mad at the company, at the promotion, at the evil empire behind it for holding down and or fucking around their favorite wrestlers. That's the base of the AEW audience. And that happened because Vince gave him such a shitty show and presented the promotion as a goddamn heel entity for so long. So now Triple H is the benevolent father figure as it should be they've realized they've seen their mistakes and they're correcting them they'll correct another one here in a minute but triple h is is talking to ray mysterio and poor ray mysterio they've given him this okay yes it's a hard sell anyway when you're doing a program with your own son but if there was something to this, if they played up more that Dominic's in love with Rhea Ripley and she's leading him around by the dick. Because everyone could believe that. Everybody could believe that. He's fallen for this girl and she's giving him a line of shit and he's fallen in with a bad crowd. And, you know, it's the power of the pussy. And everybody would believe, but instead... They're giving Ray this dramatic and unnatural scripted verbiage with too much soap opera bullshit. I I think of him, I see the baby that used to fall asleep on my shoulder. It's like they're making wrestling for soft, effeminate men and fucking childish people of all ages and sizes, I guess. Is it easier? Not that we're for scripts at all, but if you were going to have scripts for wrestling, is it easier to script a heel than a babyface? And is this why? I, I, you know, 
I don't think it's easier to script one or the other. I think it's sometimes more difficult to give talent something they can say that they can get at. See, I didn't, if I knew in any promotion or any program that I've ever been in charge of anybody's dialogue or producing a promo or or whatever, if I know that somebody is not an artful orator, I'm going to try not to give them a complicated, convoluted story. And a lot of times it might have been easier with some heels if they had a manager where the manager could really rattle off the nuts and bolts of the thing and the the heel could just put in personality without details. That was easier. A lot of times with a baby face, if you've got one that is not, you know, again, a sparkling verbal talent, it's hard for them to go over a lot of details to make people explain shit, but you try to give a guy a promo that he can do rather than the greatest promo that you've ever come up with that there's no way in the world that this other guy can fucking do it. So I, but again, this was Ray was acting and it's just, it's not, but he wants to quit. He wanted to quit wrestling. He said, it's time for me to quit. And Triple H, oh, no, let's talk about this for five minutes. Come back here with me. <laughs> okay. Ray, you Ray. stayed with us after you lost an eye. You can't let yeah, this yeah. be the thing to chase you away. <laughs> so we're 30 minutes into the show for Sami Zayn and One of the New Day and this interview. And then they had a segment where a bunch of the girls in the back did the thing where they giggly, fake, make catty remarks to each other. And they're all standing in an unnatural sideways lineup so you can see everybody on camera. And then here came the next match. Brown Strongman against two jobbers. And again, yes, nothing the matter with this. That's really what the guy should be seen doing. Because as we've talked about, old Strongman, he's limited. And his shit don't always look good. And part of it's probably because he don't want to kill anybody because he's 370 pounds or whatever. But it's 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 limited what you can see from him. So yes, put him on TV against job guys, smash him over, that's fine. Are there no maybe this is a rhetorical question, are there no good-looking professional athletes on the independent circuit anymore that they can get to be job guys that the jobbers have to look like this? these guys look like they had do-it-yourself tattoos, like everybody's got these days, are covered up with tattoos, look like shit, no physique, pale, whipped puppy expressions. Are they, That bugs me. When I used to do the job guys for the WWF, I've said I kept lists of everybody that was in driving distance, Midwest, Southeast, Texas, whatever, Northeast, whatever, so you could get guys that either hopefully had both, but either knew how to work and could hit time cues and get guys over and do what needed to be done, or that looked physically like professional athletes. And as it, there's no OVW anymore. We, yes, we had the developmental talent, but anytime they were in the Midwest or the Southeast or whatever, they could call me and I could have four, six, eight guys with physiques, with professional gear, that were experienced work in television, knew how to hit time cues, and didn't go out there looking like goddamn 
you know, what do they say? Well, they ordered it off a wish, make a wish, or whatever the fuck. Just these generic-looking bleh. It's a national TV show. But nobody that looks like a professional athlete wants to be a wrestler anymore because the ones they see successful at it look like kids that dropped out of cheerleading class. So anyway, old strongman beats these two guys, almost an MVP come to ringside, and MVP promoed the, the guy that he's, you're not the monster of monsters, my man is. And that was it, and nothing happened. And they all looked at each other, and then we went to the break. You think they're going to be able to get anybody interested in Braun Strowman? I'm interested in Braun Strowman versus Omos. What can that be? Oh, boy. I want to see those two lock up. They're both like seven foot tall. <laughs> How's that going to happen? I got to see that match. It's, it, it could be ugly. Nice um, to have MVP on the show, though. One of the best talkers in the business, and he's been misused ever since they broke him up from Lashley. Yeah, but that's like getting one of the greatest you know, pitchmen off the home shopping network and say, here, sell this. It's a brand new thing we've come up with. It's a fucking bunt cake flavored like dog shit. If only Lashley had him right now to promo against Lesnar. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Now that would work. But nevertheless. So now in the back, Jey Uso and Sammy are arguing about who caused the win because Sammy said he did it on his own. And Jay says, are you out of your mind? And Solo said, I was watching Sammy. And tonight, they're hoping that Solo will be the number one contender for the Intercontinental title in his match. And that was that. But that when, like I said, they're correcting mistakes. And the thing about L.A. Knight is I like the fact that they've realized that they committed a crime against nature, changing his name to Max Dupree, the whole male model thing, the Mansway and Mansour. And by the way, those guys have to be so embarrassed. They're going out on TV looking like that, doing that shit. I bet you they don't leave the house. When they're home, they're afraid their neighbors will see them. But the Dupree girl introduced them, and then here comes L.A. Knight, his old, you know, entrance, his old name, and they had a match, and he beat one of the male models, who gives a shit, but then he cuts the promo as L.A. Knight, and says, you know, boom, from now on, and he did a new catchphrase, and blah, 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 I expect they'll just never mention this again. But you know me, I've got the OCD. And I, I would have had to have given L.A. Knight some reason to impart to the people why he did this to, to obviously put it to bed, get over it. It was the worst idea anybody's ever had. But what was the reason that he went along with it for three weeks? Was it that she was blowing him? And he, you know, fucking lost his mind over a good blowjob? I don't know. I mean, in general, that would make sense. But the idea that it would be, I'm going to blow you. Now pretend you're my brother and manage these models? I don't. I'm just, I, I can't come up with a good I forgot they were supposed to be brother and sister. Well, Vince would have liked that one. <laughs> but 
<laughs> some I don't know. I know they probably didn't want to explain it because then they'd have more people thinking about it, and they just want everybody to forget that it ever happened, and they're going to euthanize the whole gimmick. And good for L.A. Night. But there was no reason ever given as to why he did this stupid thing for four weeks or whatever. Anyway, maybe the, you know, hey, never underestimate the power of a good blowjob, but not from your sister. We, we, we do not, under any circumstances, condone brother blowing, right? Even if they're adults. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Well, point. I forgot that we're in the middle Max of SmackDown. Dupree and the other girl used to be the sister and the brother. They did, you know. But brother, anyway, blowing. Right, they, <laughs> brother blowing is forbidden in this. Here, 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 baby. Here's chicken and waffles for you. What the hell is going on this week? Um, I got to give Harley a chicken and waffle treat because she's been a good girl. She sits up here and she's quiet except when she sneezes and has her allergy go on. So I'm I'm breaking up a chicken and waffle treat unit because she's the baby. Okay, there you go. All right, we got a six-girl tag coming up next with uh, whatever Perez, Cora Jade, and Raquel Gonzalez de Molina Jr. against Bailey and Kai and Sky. I knew we'd get Kai and Ty back on the program sooner or later. And they had a six-girl tag, didn't they? That's what I saw. It yep, appears they yep. did. There they did. So the next thing was Skid Row against the Lucha Suits in the big grudge match. Please right? tell me please tell me you watched this match. This was Oh, the, I did. This was the highlight of the show this match. Oh, I did. What in the wide wide world of sports is <laughs> So now they've got it's Legado de Fantasia is the group composed of the other guy, the, the other Mexican guy that wears a suit besides Andre Oleolio and, and his two guys. Yeah. And oh, I forgot everybody. You know, they say the economy is bad in Mexico, but every Mexican wrestler is wearing a tailored suit. So they're now with Zelina Vega and they're fighting Skid Row, who is top dollar. Dollar. Huh? Dollar, not dollar. Top dollar. Dollar. Got a dollar sign on him. But it's spelled I, D-O-L-L-A. It's not top dollar. Well, I believe this fat fucking human waterbed doesn't know how to spell, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I goddamn have to be incorrect. Top dollar and Ashante Adonis <laughs> and B-Fab. So, the Lucha suits are coming out second. The Skid Row has already come out and had their... They don't let them rap anymore, as we've mentioned probably got some type of blowback from the Institute for Hearing. A lot of deaf people complaining. Yeah, another reason why they really needed Swerve back. He was the only one who could rap. He was the only one who could rap. So then the Lucha suits come out, and the baby faces, Skid Row, that is, jump-started on the floor, and they have an awkward fight out there. And I mention again, did you see what Top Dollar was wearing? Yes. He looks like a middle-aged fat car salesman dressed for a pickup basketball game at his kid's playground. But he's too old for the group. And he remembers when he was back in high school, he could handle that ball. Make you look like a fool, boy. 
But anyway, this was a rotten match, but it was brief. <laughs> but again, Top Dollar is trying to do the fucking five-knuckle shuffle fucking dance that The Rock used to do, and he's trying to have personality oh. and do the thing Road Dog used to do with his knees before he dropped the... My God, he's so awkward, and his feet look like fucking canoes, and his belly looks like a giant beach ball uh, underneath, as I mentioned, the ridiculous playground teenage clothes that he's wearing he's got to be late 30s we looked his age up once didn't we i'll find out right now he's dressing like he's too cool for school but in reality he's too fat for his fucking hat when he did that little five knuckles shuffle whatever where he bent over and danced yes b fab at ringside really reacted like oh like look at what he's doing not one other person in that audience reacted. <laughs> Go back. That's one of the fascinating things about this match. Hit Row have been all over TV now for several weeks, and no one reacted to them at all. And they beat him, beat Top Dollar, as a matter of fact, beat him with a double-team move, flat in the middle of the fucking ring, wallering around like a fucking... You know, the thing is, Top Dollar does like to go to the beach because he likes children, and at the beach, all the kids love to play in his shade. What? I don't, okay, again, the comedy police may be on the phone at any moment here. Zelina Vega mugged B-Fab when she jumped yeah, she has, she has. I, I wasn't sure what she was going for, but I figured B-Fab's going to turn around and take a Hurricane Rana, because that's what happens. No, she just, like, shoot bulldog. <laughs> yeah, the girls were stiffer than the guys, but yeah, but this was short, and they beat Skid Row just, like, flat down, so maybe they've realized, what have we got here? She looked great, Zelina Vega. And remember, when Andrade was tolerable, she was the manager. She was great yeah, at ringside. Yeah, well, she, she's got some experience all the way around, but these, her fucking cohorts. Um, someone, should, someone should embrace Lucha Suits, because it really is one of the greatest nicknames you've ever had, because it works. <laughs> the Lucha Suits! All righty. But anyway, so maybe, do you think we saw the last of Skid Row there? Is that another thing they've realized? What the fuck have we done? And they're trying to back up on that now. I don't know, but if Top Dollar, and I'm not too familiar with his work, and I'm trying to be fair, but if he's really good on the mic, and maybe that's what I've missed, make him Michael Hayes. He should not be in the ring. He didn't look particularly impressive, and he's a former football player, 32 years old. He's only 32? 32, former football player, but he didn't look that impressive. There has to be another way to do this because when they had them come out and rap, like, must have been like a month ago now, it was so bad. That killed any chance they had. And then since that time, the matches aren't good. They're reacting to themselves much more than any of the fans <laughs> are reacting to them at all. I don't know how and much I mean, longer you stick I, the, with this. The other guy, Ashante, okay, he looks kind of cool. And I mean, I'm not a hip-hop expert or the culture of the young black America, the, the sound of black America, Motown, whatever. But I'm sorry, even my old white fucking elderly ass can tell the top dollar looks like a fat fucking guy. It works down at the local fucking Jiffy Lube and fancies himself a... 
I don't know. Is he cool? Is it cool that the kids call themselves in the hip hop where he fancies himself as he's cool and he's young and he's hip, but in actuality, he's old and he's bald and he's fat. You want to know the difference? I don't think he's far off in age from where Max Caster is. And I'm comparing them because they're the two hip hop tag teams in the two different wrestling companies. The Acclaim got themselves over. Yeah. And Max Caster has clever rhymes. You want to hear what he has to say. After fucking Hit Row came out there rapping that one time to whatever that song was they prepared for them, no one wants to see or We're hear back. them ever again. Remember, we back. We're back. That was we the back. song. Yeah. All righty. Speaking of in the back, Cruella DeVille is doing an interview in the backstage area, and here comes Liv Morgan, who is now apparently the second coming of goddamn Abdullah the Butcher and is just going to fucking viciously attack everybody, and she's hardcore. And they have a big, in quotation marks, fight. On the same show as Karrion Cross and Drew McIntyre did it well, now here's another backstage fight amongst girls, and it was ridiculous. And Liv clears off a table and bounces Cruella off the table 18 million times. <laughs> Old Cruella is just leaning down and slapping the table with her hands every time, like that's her head. And then she put her on the table, which of course she laid there for, so that Liv Morgan could climb up a scaffolding and jump off and do a senton on her through the table. In the back, with no people, out of an interview where the interviewer, as soon as the attack started, disappeared, never said a word, nobody came to help. This is just going on in the backstage area on the same show as they did it with their main event guys. And what lunatic thinks that Liv Morgan is ever going to be taken as a danger and a menace to society? <sighs> well, they're trying. Not very hard. Where's Lacey? So, e was that really? I, I joked about it, but that really was the end of Lacey Evans. What I think it? it was the end of Lacey Evans. I think she's in table heaven now. Table heaven. That's where all the people go to get put through those tables. You never see them again because they're in table heaven. Either that or they're inside the walls with the internet service providers. Yeah, Julia Hart went through that table, and then she put out a statement saying, I'm okay, and then we never saw her never ever again. Never seen her again. Ah. So the number one contendership for the Intercontinental title was on the line in a four-way match with no disqualification. Ricochet versus Sheamus versus Solo versus Rey Mysterio. And when this came on, there was 30 minutes left in the show, and I said, oh, hell no. It's a four-way. We know that it's going to be a mess. I'm going to skip ahead to the good part and see what happens. And after about 15 minutes, Sheamus had a cloverleaf on Solo, and that's where the Brazilian tap that we talked about earlier in today's program was attempted to be explained by Michael Cole, not as well as it was explained by our emailer. As I said, the... Somebody's got to go back and get a transcript because I've forgotten. I think I've already deleted this. But if you can transcribe what was said about the double tap and then read it out loud, if you didn't know, you still wouldn't know. But because I had 
previously seen the email and knew I kind of got where they were going. But it's the whole thing's odd. Anyway, Sheamus gets the Cloverleaf on Solo, but lets the Cloverleaf go to fight off Sami Zayn and Jey Uso, who just jumped in the ring, because even though they're not in the match, it's no disqualification. So everything, and then here comes Butch, and here comes Ridge, and now there's a big fight with everybody. And in the middle of all that, Rey Mysterio and Ricochet were in the ring, and Rey gives Ricochet, I've never seen this before, a flipping forward pile driver, is the only way I can describe it, and then... <laughs> Like, that would have been a hell of a fucking finish. Boom, he planted him right on his head like a fence post. But then Ricochet feeds over to where he can set up himself up for the 619. He takes a 619, and then Mysterio splashes him off the top rope, one, two, three. So in the middle of this big Donnybrook going on outside amongst everybody else, they're still wrestling in the ring, and Ray gives this guy three finishes in a row and then beats him. So the guy that wanted to quit the business an hour and a half ago is now the number one contender to the Intercontinental title. Maybe Triple H took him in the back and said, hey, I've got you figured in to go over in the match. Then he said, oh, if I don't have to do a job, I won't quit the business. Did I miss anything in this match, or was it the same thing that we see in every fucking four-way with no disqualification, lazy booking? Yeah, four-way is one of those things that makes me zone out nowadays. Sick of it. All right. Well, then we get to the main event of the evening. No, not that match. Because, again, the WWE is always in a position where a, an interview or a Legends reunion is more attractive to the viewers than an actual wrestling match. So the Bray Wyatt return was in the main event spot. Brian... What do you think I thought about Bray Wyatt's interview? I think you were reminded of what we thought about him before he left, which was he clearly is a talented orator. He clearly has things he is looking forward to saying and doing. And this doesn't belong on a wrestling show and it never goes anywhere. And am I close? You started out real good, and then you trailed off. Because this was the best thing I saw on any of the wrestling shows. What? That's what I said. I'm not talking about... And, and the entrance is fine. He didn't teleport anywhere. He didn't appear from another dimension. It's an entrance. And WWE does entrances better than anybody. And you can trace you know, big opulent entrances going back to Gorgeous George or Lawler coming out on the horse to Coliseum or, you know, whatever the case. I didn't mind the entrance, spooky lights, music, fog, the forbidden door that opens and a light from within and a lantern and a figure emerge. You got to hand it to their production team. This is not making the wrestling business look bad. This kind of entrance and it's a big-budget production, so I'm good with the entrance. There's no nothing about it that we're supposed to think is magic. 
And it, by the way, it's a catchy tune. Is that his old music? It didn't sound familiar. Is that a new song? Because they played the whole thing because the entrance did take five minutes. New song. So that was nice. He's got a vibe. People were up. They were chanting, welcome back, welcome back. But here's why I say this was the best thing I saw on either program. Yes, this guy can talk. Not only can he talk, but he's got the charisma, the, like I said earlier, promo charisma that Adam Page doesn't have. A lot of these other guys don't have. His voice, his giggle, his attitude, his unique delivery. That's what I like about this. I instantly knew that even if they told him this is kind of the direction we want to go, nobody wrote this for him. It's his words being delivered in his cadence with Harley coughing again. I need you to get you another Claritin, baby. She's been such a good girl while she's up here today. Every once in a while, she'll wander over into the bathroom and go on her little pee pad because we're up off the ground here, so she can't get out. They want to get her bladder checked. Well, every once in a while. We've been here a while. But anyway, back to Bray Wyatt. The delivery, the tone, the, the way it flows, his inflection, and he was emotional here, and you can tell that he's probably, there was some element of truth in this. I guess he's another person that's, had doubts about himself or had crises in his personal life. And you mentioned earlier in the program, a lot of people have said, oh, I've lost somebody. If anybody was going to lose anybody, if anybody was going to have doubts about themselves, if anybody as a, relates to the wrestling programs and the, the putting it out in front of people, this is the one. That's where this card should be used. That's where that promo should be given because this guy can fucking do it. It wasn't like, Adam Page moaning and bitching and whining like a dork about his goddamn misery. This guy, you felt like he meant it. You know, he said when he thought, nothing I ever did mattered, but I was wrong. The people still asked about me and cared about me and thanked me for what I'd done for them. And it was like the guy was having a nervous breakdown here on television and it was captivating. It wasn't like the, again, I go back to, it wasn't like that goofy Adam Page screaming and punching himself in the head where you're staring at him like, what the fuck's the matter with this guy? You were listening to what Bray Wyatt said, and you believed that he was delivering it with authenticity and an air of genuineness. He was talking to him like Punk does, or like Mick Foley did, or like all the other, like MJF does, but in his own way. It was the same concept as those guys that can reach you on a verbal level, but in his own manner of delivery. And then he finishes up with, because and he, like any great babyface, because he's going to be a babyface now, they're happy to see. Like any great babyface, he drew a correlation between himself and the fans. He likened himself to the fans. And the same doubts about themselves and the same problems they had that they thanked him for helping them be distracted from or overcome or get past or whatever, he's doing the same thing to them. Thank you. You all saved my life. 
between the delivery and the unique aspect of it and his vocal quality and the inflection and the emotion he put in this, this is how you draw money in wrestling. Now, I don't know what the fuck he's going to do from here, and we'll talk about the end of the segment in a second. If he's going to be set on fire again, or if, you know, the the opponent in the Firefly Funhouse is going to be transported to another dimension. Remember that one? Where they're running through, the, like a Rob Zombie movie, he was running through the Funhouse being, you know, fucking accosted by puppets that have somehow become sentient beings then that's going to be garbage. But I can see now if this was the original Bray Wyatt that people started, you know, enjoying and liking and being fan of before you and I, or at least me, started watching and before they started doing all that supernatural bullshit, I can get into this fucking guy. He's got something there, but it's only if they start doing cinematic or supernatural or hocus pocus that this may go down the porcelain throne. And so, and I'll give you the final comment on the end of the video, and then you can say what I surprised you with and what you thought was going to be the case. But as soon as he got all that out, thank you, you all saved my life, boom, another spooky video comes up on the screen. And there's a voiceover with weird visuals. And it's somebody talking to Bray Wyatt, and the deal is you've got no idea who you're dealing with, but you will. Okay, now I'm interested in finding out who that might be, because is there somebody else? It, it, who, who have we overlooked that could come in and fill a spot like that? Is it somebody on the roster? It, it would be a different way of presenting them if that was the case. So who is this going to be? And more importantly, is it going to be a legitimate personal issue a la the days when Kevin Sullivan or the more spooky people in wrestling would stalk somebody in kind of a realistic fashion? Or is it going to be, you know, more Twilight Zone stuff where they're throwing fucking lightning bolts at each other? Your thoughts. He's a talented guy. It's just I wish there was some billionaire out there wanting to start a theater kid promotion for fucking wrestlers. Well, but if he can work it's, and he can talk But he can't like work. This. But he can't work. We've seen his matches. His matches well, are terrible. But that's when when he was the fiend and he was not selling anything and you'd hit him over the head with fucking nuclear bombs and he would come back to life and all the supernatural stuff. Can he actually work a wrestling match did he do that before? Could he, when they were having him do that or letting him do it or telling him to do it? Or do we just got to get a good promo and then it's a rotten match with supernatural overtones? What's going on here? Again, I think it's going to be nothing but supernatural overtones. He did this whole interview with spooky lighting. Well, that, and I don't mind that. It was mood lighting. The you know, Yeah, it, put me in the mood to turn the channel. Oh, come on. If the guy, again, from this segment, I didn't see anything that couldn't have actually happened. A guy comes out in the mood lighting and does his promo and he's talking to people and it was meaningful. There was no supernatural. It was a spooky atmosphere, but that's part of his ambiance, so I can get behind that. I don't know who the 
antagonist is that popped up on the screen at the end. I'm looking forward to finding out, and I hope they don't disappoint us by then going to fucking Hogwarts and having a goddamn sorcerer battle or something. If I was Bray Wyatt, I would go into the truck and kick the shit out of the director. <laughs> because how did that get on the air? There's your clue to figuring out who it is that submitted this. Who is it that had access to the truck? Uh, we, you know, who, what has become of us here when I'm willing to work with them a little bit more on logic? I know, than what you the are. fuck with this guy? I mean, look, and again, very talented guy. Clearly, Blackjack's charisma and way with words skipped a generation, and he's got it as good as anyone. He's an amazing talker, he's very compelling. He should start a church, or he should go out to Hollywood and be an actor. But I don't want to start seeing this again. We know how this is going to end. We know how this is going to turn out. Unless we believe that it was all Vince, we know where this is going. And i that's why I'm not getting all excited. Everyone else gets excited when anyone pops back up. How can I miss you if you won't go away? Has been proven true several times this year. But I'm, I'm just... I can't. I'm not going to give this guy a chance. He's got to show me something as opposed to him showing up and I'm supposed to forget years and years of crap. Well, I'm not going to goddamn, you know, just move in with the guy and and become his foot servant. I like the promo. We'll see where this goes from here. But if they can avoid doing anything that violates the natural laws of gravity and physics in a program with this guy from his interview i'm willing to give him a chance see people always say i never give anybody a chance well he's been gone away for a while they burned him to a crisp they scattered his ashes to the winds now he's been resurrected let's see what he does from here with a new administration all right that's all once again the show went off the air with a spooky character taking over the titantron (laughs) And uh, seemingly also the television feed. And he had some mysterious nothings to whisper to Bray Wyatt. And then the show just went off the air. But now who's the mysterious spooky figure going to be? Because if it's somebody on the roster that now they've just made spooky to fight Bray Wyatt, well, that'll kind of be a letdown. Maybe it'll be Rikishi. Oh, come on. Is there anybody in the world of wrestling that we can think of that would fit that tease and come in and have a program with Bray Wyatt. And why wouldn't we have heard about him before now? Malachi black. Oh, well, and WWE just re-signed Bo Dallas, his brother. Let's not forget that who has never, whatever he can do, he's never really had a chance to do it on the main roster. So whatever he can do, he's never really done it. Is that what you're trying? He's never been, he's never done it on the main roster, whatever he did to get over in NXT years ago. But, Perhaps if they brought Bray Wyatt back and they just signed his brother, they're going to do something with them together? Well, no, because, okay, Bo Dallas, when I hear that name, I immediately think of a spooky figure on a Titantron. No, that would be the biggest popcorn fart in the history of fucking entertainment. It has to be, it would have to be some type of name that one would get a a jolly in their taint from, from thinking about so-and-so versus Bray Wyatt. Battle of the Spooky People. But it's a cliff. They left with a cliffhanger. Be thankful for small favors. Usually people just wander off and they play music. Speaking of ending a show with just playing some music and walking off, I'm ready to walk off even if we don't play any music. I was going to say, you have a song? <laughs> what are you no, saying? But, 
Well, I've got a song in my heart I want to sing, and I'm going to sing it. <laughs> and that song is that that was the week in wrestling, folks, and we've talked about some great Canadian memories, and we're going to come back next week on The Experience, do it all over again. We're going to be back in a few days on the drive through your program. Do you have any parting thoughts for the cult of Cornette faithful out there? The drive through will be awesome this week. I guarantee it. Well, and you know what Brian last word means. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, for this episode of The Experience and all the fine people in Toronto and wherever the fuck they were in SmackDown, I didn't even notice. We'll see you next week. And until then, thank you, fuck you, and bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch this show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo My mom's basement. I steal her Wi-Fi, not pay no rent. school. We've got indie stars drop back from wrestling school. Our children lie at the top of the car. He trained himself in his own backyard. And this is shit everyone should get. Well, everyone. Except Jim Cornette Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Who needs women for hanging round in bars When you can watch the Bucks get seven stars When you can watch the Bucks turn seven stars Dynamite's the word Best ever tag team division Haven't you heard We've got Jericho Orange Cassidy And Michael Rio Like Tony I get fancy booking A title tournament Now we're cooking And I can wait to hear What Cody has to say When Marco's stunt Goes all the way Wednesday nights I get Stay up late, watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, mom, don't come in. Go away, I'm watching wrestling. Go away, I'm watching wrestling. Oh, this is wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corey, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick. Or that Bobby Eaton could hold the camera to either Matt or Nick. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife. Or get them in the hot tub to play Spock the Submarine with him and his wife. And no mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero. The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? Hello?